and talking to our friends. Hellboy Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Aubrey Lovelace. I'm Danielle. And I'm Matt Schreckbein. Hey, you're back, Matt. Welcome back, Matt. Thanks for calling me last week. Yeah, that was fun. I I was glad that we were still able to include you in the episode. All right, gang, like I say every week, give us a review. If you're enjoying the show, we'd really appreciate a shout-out or a review on iTunes. Thanks, Sarah Cole, book club member, for plugging us on Twitter. Uh, Somebody was talking about Hellboy, and she chimed in there, and she said uh, to check out our podcast, Gotta Feed the Beast of Apocalypse Somehow. They are good people. Yeah, so thank you for saying that. Circle, book club member. Book club member. (laughs) Yeah, so this is an all-Hellboy podcast. We're reading all the Hellboy books as they intertwine. We actually haven't read any Hellboy in a while, but we're going to be getting to some soon. We also engage with our listeners. You want to tell them a little bit about that, Danielle? You got to give us an email because you're going to read a book and then you're going to listen to us. We're all going to talk about the book and you talk about it too. You send us a message, whatever you like on the social media there, and then that's a Hey Damn Guys, and then we talk about that. We talk about what you talked about, and that's a book club. Back to you, John. Yeah. And now we're going to go on to our listener feedback section. Get out, trade some floppies. Get out, hardback copies. Digital is fine. Read along time. Get out. We got to... Hey, you damn guys, from Brian Levy. All right. Hey, Brian Levy. Hey, friends. Hope everything's doing well and that seasonal affective disorder isn't a thing in Texas. Oh, it is, but it's just warm for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Me, I've got my Zoloft and my weighted blanket, so everything's good in New York. Nice. I want to respond to Matt's response last week to my response to the podcast a few weeks ago. <laughs> I, guess, <laughs> I guess my not getting into the lobster comics had more to do with learning too much about the guy. One of my favorite TV shows of all time is Lost. I love the distinct weirdness of stuff like the polar bear on the island. What the fuck was that doing there? The polar bear in the first episode was almost so bizarre that it bordered on disturbing. But once we found out why the polar bear was there, suddenly the polar bear being there was kind of boring. Oh, the island has weird magic and some scientists were studying it. Okay. No, I don't want that spelled out to me. I just want a fucked up island. I want the hint of something bizarre and formless that I'll never be able to put a finger on. Fast forward a few years, and this was my thought when I decided against adding Lobster Johnson comics to my pool list. To avoid getting into that part of the story, I just had no interest in learning about, ruining what was so fun about keeping something mysterious. The thing is, though, following along with you guys got me realizing that that's not what this series is about at all. I was totally wrong. This series is about the people who witness what the lobster does, and that's it. The lobster does crazy stuff, and it definitely fills in the timeline, but we get more reveals about what his deal is from his old appearances in Hellboy and the BPRD. Instead, we get Cindy, Harry, Isog, and Wald's story, and it's really interesting. Also, I have some fun, spooky, occult research stuff I want to talk about, but I'll leave that for next week because I want to keep these emails moving and hear about this week's story. All the best, Brian. And then you find out they all go to church. It's purgatory the whole time. Oh, no. Lost. Right. It wasn't it's purgatory. fucking stupid. It wasn't purgatory uh, the whole time. Spoilers for Lost, right? <laughs> go to church. Uh, 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 the show, we're all um, in church. Well, the best part about watching Lost is watching it with you guys every yeah. week. Yeah, that it's was fun. Stuff. We did do that. Yeah. That was our original. The first book club. season of that fucking show is such a good fucking show, and then it's like I I see where Brian's coming from with the lobster. 
because I read it with a constant hesitation. Right. It's the exact, like, I think all fans of Lobster Johnson probably feel that same way. Like, don't tell me too much. And this is what we were just talking about in regards to his origin. Like, I don't want to know. Right. Just give me the action. It's funny because the things that would normally keep a comic or any kind of story stale are what keep the lobster fresh. Like, every time you kill somebody just for justice sake, and, and you're like, that's a little vague. Right. I mean, you're you're murdering people who are bad guys, but every time he does it, you're like, he did it again. That's Instead good of, oh, that's he good did though. it again, you know? Yeah. So it's kind of it's kind of funny. Um, but been asked it, with a luggage rack. It's my kind of shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I was I, I did go back because I was looking at the burning hand for something. I for one of the posts, I think I went back to that one, and like they kill Massimo, and then they like pull all his guts out. You know what I mean? Like that's you know maybe that was more Kamala and the Black Flame, but Wald and Isog were wrapped up in that too. And to the Lobster, that was all the same thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, I kind of remembered that, and I was like, oh yeah, there was some. In the lobster's mind, they did some pretty heinous stuff to him and his crew. When I think about like Wald and all that, it kind of reminds me when I start thinking about like you can cut this out if you want to. Um, when I start thinking about like you know George Bush, it's just like really is he really that bad? And then I see an interview with him from that time, I'm like, oh wait, yes, fuck that guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also remembering yeah. his legacy of of murder is. Oh, that's what I mean. It's yeah, just, yeah, that's you know, what I mean. It, yeah. But it's been oh, yeah, so yeah. far removed, right? You know? Oh, yeah, because, like, yeah. nothing stays in the news for more than five fucking minutes anyway, yeah. so. Yeah. So, I mean, and so that's kind of how the feeling I got with, like, Walt and all that. And I was like, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. Like, oh, no, wait. No, he's a dick. He's a fucking gangster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mobster, like, old school Al Capone type shit. <laughs> right, yeah. We got a Hey You Damn Guys from Ephraim Navarro. He said, this is a long one. I hope you don't mind. Still making my way through the podcast. I'm currently on episode 42, and it really is a perfect companion for the Mignolaverse. Jeez, I just realized I listened to 25 episodes in 21 days. Don't, oh, wow. <laughs> don't judge me. Commutes are long in Mexico City. I swear I do have a job. A couple, <laughs> a couple of thoughts on two subjects. I was very troubled to hear about the John Arcudi controversy. It totally slipped my radar. I researched a little in the internet and couldn't find anything more definitive than what you discussed on the podcast. I know we don't have all the information and maybe never will, but, you know, that work for hire argument has screwed over so many other, you know, people in comics history. Yeah, it has. You know, the least that I can do as a fan is acknowledge the significant role that Arcudi and other creators have had in shaping the Mignolaverse. Yeah, and to be honest, like a couple listeners reached out to me this week because last week we were talking about how come the other Lobster Johnson stuff hasn't come out? How come the trades haven't been reprinted? And some people were saying, oh, maybe it has to do with this stuff with John Arcudi, which is like a huge bummer. You know what I mean? I try not to focus on those things because I want to be part of like the positive side of the fandom and stuff like that. But that stuff does exist out there. But like one thing that I try to point out to people too is like we really don't know the whole story. The specific details on whatever, whatever is like it's only between those people, you know, we don't really know. We probably will never know. So it's just like, but I do like what Ephraim is saying is like, all we can really do as fans is just acknowledge that John Arcudi has been so awesome in the series and he's done so much to help build it. And like whatever has happened between them personally or whatever kind of falling out, or I don't even want to speculate. You know what I mean? I, I, I hate doing that because again, we, we don't know we, we don't know. These are just, 
these are actual people and they have lives and they have point of view. Yeah, these are not characters yeah. in a you movie that I mean? we're so discussing. Like, this I, is, I, I hate know. to kind of speculate or be like, oh, well, this person probably did this right, or this right, person right. probably did that or they don't know what they're talking about. So, you know what I mean? I, I do appreciate that a lot of listeners recognize that too. And unfortunately, that's just part of the... That's just the reality of these relationships with comic books. It's, it's existed and happened so many times throughout the years. Right. But it is sort of appropriate to bring up John Arcudi um, for this particular episode, because this is right. The rise of the black flame is right around when Arcudi had announced that he wasn't going to be writing the BPRD and all the, all the Hellboy universe books anymore. Right. Uh, and in the, letter column for this first issue scott alley is talking about it a little bit and he says because you know you can't have a black flame story without referencing all this stuff that our himself wrote right right Uh, and he says um it was a couple years ago now that john told me he was abandoning his post as main writer of magnoliaverse his runs of bprd hell on earth ends in just a couple of months but Already we miss him, although he continues with the long-running Officer Johnson series. So uh, that always said to me that he was going to be the main writer on Officer Johnson forever. Right. I wonder if there would be a conflict of some kind with putting those out. I, I fall back on what Mark was saying. Like, they just want to tell more story and then give you these three big books. Right, right. And we'll get to, Mark has some more specific things to say about that in some of our other listener feedback. But yeah, thank you for wrapping that up, man. I really am glad that you had that comment, uh, that it was in this issue. That's very appropriate. I keep forgetting to do this, but I mean, I know we sing Mark's praises all the time, but... For this episode in particular, I really did have to research the Hell Notes big time because it's one thing to know all of this from multiple reads, right? And to to know all this information, but it is such a blessing to be able to reference a consolidated article. Oh, right. Mark (laughs) Hell Notes. He's already done all the work, yeah. I have an article that I referenced to that I wrote for Magnoliaverse.com about the Black Flame. And this series is basically like the first part of that. And so even falling back on my own article, it's just nice to have all that stuff in one spot where you can read it and it's nice and concise. So huge shout out to Mark Budin. Yeah, for sure. Ephraim also said, on a jollier note, regarding the Hellboy in Mexico stories, even though Mignola says that he has never watched any of the Mexican wrestler movies, I think those stories capture pretty well the essence of the genre. I was pretty surprised that nobody put you on track of some of these. Maybe you know some of this stuff, as they are widely available on the internet, but I wanted to send you some links in case you don't. And so he sent me this huge length of these themes that we see in a lot of Mignolaverse comics, involving mexican wrestler movies oh wow and a lot of these are available on youtube he pointed out santo versus the vampire women from 1962 santo and blue demon versus dracula and the werewolf from 1973 santo versus the mummies of guanajanto guanajanto was mentioned in bprd he says um that there's one with english subtitles if we want to watch it on youtube Sex and the Vampire from 1968. He said, this one is definitely worth your time. The plot is basically El Santo, the most famous Mexican wrestler, travels back in time to fight Dracula. The original, 
The original All Ages Cut was screened in the 60s. The R-rated version was found in a vault in 2011 and screened as part of the Vampire Cinema retrospective selected by Guillermo del Toro himself. He also pointed out Santo and the Blue Demon versus the Monsters from 1969. This one is really bonkers. It even has a dance number in it. Looking forward <laughs> to hear you in the future at the rate I'm listening. Maybe I'll be up to date with the current episodes in late February. Efren Navarro, book club member. Yeah, thank you so much, man. Thank you. I had to, I had to look up and see what issue 40, I mean, episode 42 was. Right. <laughs> what was it? Uh, Abe Saving and the Drowning and Ogopogo. Oh, cool. Nice. Yeah. How do you spell this book club member's name? It's not Efren. I'm not sure. I wonder if he could clarify. Yeah, let us let us know if you're saying hey, your if, name if wrong. If your name is Efren and not Efren, yes, please tell, tell us. us that. Brandon Wilder said he just caught up on the podcast in the last few weeks. He said, great to have Matt back. Hashtag kill the plaque flame. Hashtag the greatest podcast. So thanks so much, Brandon. Aww. We had some feedback on Lobster Johnson Metal Monsters of Midtown. Mark Tweedell said, I'm a little behind catching up on the episode today on the topic of covers of the pulps, because Matt, you posted your book that you were researching. He said, have you seen the Joe Gollum covers by Dave Palumbo? Yeah, so Joe Gollum is another title that deals with like this occult detective. We'll maybe get to that at some point, but they have great pulp covers and they, they capture that classic pulp look perfectly. Mark also said this story felt like an homage to Superman, the mechanical monsters. I think Hayden Orr also totally. said that last week. Yeah. He also said, wow, I never thought about this. I'd love to see the story of the lobster in late 1938 or early 39 going to Europe and battling Nazis in the hollow earth. I imagine 1938 was a big year for the lobster. What with his crew breaking up and then leaving for Europe. It's not hard to imagine how his Memnon saw investigation would have led him that way. And regarding the changes to MN, so remember that guy, he like got bug eyes and all that from using the machine? Yeah. Yeah. It's likely a side effect of the machines using him to channel Ogdruhem's spirits. Similar oh, would yeah. happen to the frog monsters in BPRD The Warning, but not as extreme. Yeah, right, right. that's a really okay. good I, that's a really good parallel. You know, lots of people have been talking about that old school Fleischer Superman mm-hmm. series, that cartoon. I have of... to assume it's part of the DC streaming service. Oh, because, okay. Like suddenly everyone's talking about it all the time. But that, I heard that on last week's episode during the listener feedback, and I was like, duh, of course. Yeah. It just made so much sense. But you know what's cool about that series? They use rotoscope. Yeah, I didn't know that. Rotoscoping is my jam. Yeah. And so when Superman would fly, though, they were like, ah, oh, we can't rotoscope that. What are we going to do? And so the animators at the time weren't very good at figure drawing. So they had figure drawing experts come in or illustrators come in to coach the animators and collaborate with them. That's super cool. It's pretty cool. So when he's flying, they're like, this is how he would look. So isn't that cool? That that is so awesome. When in doubt, hire an expert. I was going to say, um, I've been seeing a lot of GIFs of that Fleischer Superman on Twitter. And one of the ones that I saw being shared a lot was one of him flying. And it was really amazing. Like, you know, for the technology at the time. Yeah, my um, old roommate of mine used to have him on DVD. And I watched all of them one time. Oh, nice. Uh, We had some feedback on Lobster Johnson, the Pirate's Ghost, our story from last week. Drew Campbell said, as far as Walt getting killed, yeah, it's pretty brutal to use his wife to manipulate him and then kill him in front of her. 
But remember what drove her nuts in the first place, the sight of him chopping up a body. That's pretty horrific, and doubtless not the only time he did things like that. So it's pretty easy to see that from the lobster's point of view, his death was perfectly justified. You may have looked this up by now, but the lobster dies at Hunt Castle in 1939. I was like almost 10 years off with what I said last oh. week. <laughs> the pirate's ghost is 1936, and the Iron Prometheus takes place in 37. So we have about one and a half years to two years worth of his life that hasn't been touched. I would imagine there are one or two major stories to be told in that time frame as far as telling the lobster's origin. While I agree that the creative team could probably do a good job with it, I kind of agree with Matt that it's something that shouldn't be revealed. I think it's awesome. It makes perfect sense that the lobster is the biggest question mark in the entire Mignolaverse. And to answer that question mark, they would need to have something pretty damn amazing to be worth it. I have faith that the storytellers understand that if we ever do get his origin, I have no doubt it will blow my mind. Yeah, awesome. I don't know. I feel like with the, with his origin, it's been built up so much. It's just like, will it? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I think it'd be great. No, I mean, because they, they consistently, like, it's consistently been one of those things where I, I'll get into a story and be like, whoa, this is on another level. This is mind-blowingly fucking cool. And I my life is better for having read this and having this in my life and having this exist so i i have no doubt they'd be equal to the task i don't doubt that for a second that it would be amazing that's how i felt when i read the island that's what i'm saying i was, like, I was I, thinking of that story I when was i was like, saying that i just need now. this in my life I, <laughs> like it's yeah. you know it, it not only is a great way to weave the story together but it also means something personal or it's kind that of is it, exactly the story yeah. i was thinking of when i said that yeah. Art is an amazing thing. Ross Radke said, I'm curious if the story changes your answers to the question I asked a while back about where the lobster falls on the vigilante scale from righteous hero to psychopath. He cares about good, decent folks, but doesn't really know how to be one himself. I'm not buying the theory he's always been a body-hopping ghost, but maybe there's a spirit a bit like the shaman in Abe that the boy who became the lobster as we know was the perfect vessel for. Mm. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, okay. So, like, you know, we've seen, like, Abe became that shaman. It's kind of been guiding him. Sure. It, like, saved him in the middle of King of Fear. So maybe the lobster is something like that. Or Well, and also we've got, like, a Ted Howard situation where he was like, all of a sudden I have the power. Yeah. And, you know, like, I... I... Something like... Th- that makes a precedent yeah. for it. And we talk about the real... Like and FDR, we talk about this see? And, like-, <laughs> like, yeah. So I, I'm sticking with my favorite theory that he's a ghost, but I also understand that there's a lot of in-between and there's a lot of... There's like a... It's a gradient. You know, right. it's, a, it's a spectrum. Maybe the, the lobster is its own ghost and it's like influencing this this man yeah. that we know as lob- as the lobster... Just like Shanshin is kind of influencing Abe. Ah, uh, yeah. Who Does knows? that make sense? But I think I think that when it comes to the lobster, it's kind of a Batman deal where he's like, "I got the one that Gotham needs, but it's the one it deserves. <laughs> it's the one hockey pants. You know, he's the one that you deserve, but you don't necessarily want need him or whatever the fuck that is about. He's like, I sacrifice." My whole entire thing, I have a girlfriend because my parents are dead and I need to clean up Gotham streets, except he doesn't kill anybody. Right. So it's yeah. like in reverse. It's like it's like hyper 
Batman in reverse if he killed everybody. He was like, <laughs> "Well, did you do something bad? You're dead. You're dead. You're dead." <laughs> well, 1940s Batman before like the comic code came around, Batman did kill people. Okay, right, so that's what right. I'm. Yeah, so that's you know what I mean. Like he's he's like he's a Nazi killing here. Batman. Right. So we've read all of the Lobster Johnson stories that are available to us, right? Except for one short story. Yes. So we know that he's not necessarily meant for anything greater than being a vigilante. Well, no, he comes back as a ghost and he's like, hey, guys, I'm helping you out. So that is He's a deus ex machina, too, though. That's supernatural and there's something trippy there. But he's still only doing exactly what he would have done in life. That's why Kate and Bruno leave him fighting Nazis. I mean, yeah. it was just like he killed Gilfried. That's all he was trying to do. He's the spirit of justice. You're right. Yeah. He's the spirit like, of justice. But the, I mean, give me something more. Right, right. That's what like, you're talking about. Hellboy yeah. is, is not, inspired by him to fight Nazis. It might be, he might set be Hellboy wrong. on that path. Yeah. Yes, totally. I, I do think there's a lot to be said for that. But and and this is probably the wrong word. But I'm trying to like adjust the scale. And the importance of scale sure. for this character. So it seems like his determined to lead this like sort of petty existence where he's just going <laughs> to kill the bad guys. But in terms of a pulp, that's as big a deal as it gets. I think so. Yeah. Like back so. in the old pulps, there wasn't anything more than that unless it was alien invasion. Look, someone's got to right? do it. Someone's got to get was... their hands dirty and do it. <laughs> but Someone they keep talking to. about how Abe is like to be a messiah and Liz sure, sure. a goddess or something. You've got to have and... folks on the ground too. Not everyone can be a right. universe altering force of nature. Not everybody can be the new messiah. Some people are just boots on the ground. And I think that that's right. important today as it and ever I... was. Because, you know, you hear people talk about what would you have done with, during right. the Nazi. Well, you're looking at it now. This is what you would be doing. So are you, what are you doing? And I think that yeah, that's a prime yeah. example of like, wow, you're really and fucking out there doing it. Like he's really stomping Nazi skulls. <laughs> he's actually doing it. So it's and one of those my, things that you, you know, got to admire. About but that's my ultimate point is that it's totally appropriate for this comic. Sure. Right. For Lobster Johnson to not be anything greater than a vigilante. The reporter, Cindy Tynan, she's not cracking skulls. Maybe she's, you know can't necessarily that's not her forte so what she does is the other end of that she's trying to get the word out she's trying to get the truth out she's trying to do what she can in her own way and i think that you know she's not part of the underground fighting crew but she's doing what she thinks is right and she sacrifices a great deal to do that and we talked about all that so i think it's like like you said in this pulpy kind of atmosphere when you get down to the the gritty parts of it, maybe there's not necessarily a whole lot going on that's supernatural. But you know, maybe that's what it's for. It's the other end of it. It's yeah. like kind of this. So, why was this inspiring to Hellboy? Why was this inspiring to people as a pulp comic book? And I think right. that they're sort of exploring that, which is I don't know. I find it super interesting. Yeah. Well, maybe we can agree that Lobster Johnson is spectacular on a street level. Yeah. 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 Right. But like I'm, it's not it doesn't need to be any more than this. I'm I'm also not willing to give up the idea that something slightly supernatural is there because we've seen it. Oh yeah. So no. many right. times. So that's, so what, I'm, exactly. that's what I'm trying to get You're at. You're saying yeah, it's good, like what is it then? You had said before that it's connected to Vril 
And I think that that's a great tie-in because that ties to yeah. every single thing we've talked about in this. You know, that it, it's really all it comes down to. That's kind of the ultimate force that we end up dealing with when it comes to super cosmic shit. Every time, you know, so with the dragons and the... Right. Well, you know, who knows? Like, what? who can say what psychopath... Like, you know, psychopaths used to be a word that we used to, like, demonize violent people, but... Aren't right. people who have certain types of psychosis more vulnerable to violence than they are prone to committing it? You know, so what what really is I think it's all relative, you know, and when you're right. talking about books that have more cosmic forces behind it than anything else, you know, there's something to your theory that could end up being a cosmic thing yeah. you know it all ends up being that anyway when we when we're dealing with bprd and hellboy and all that anyway yeah, so we, it's we talked about we have we've compared it so many times to sledgehammer you know which on yeah. a, on the surface is just like a war thing and you've got this giant guy in a iron man suit right. but then beyond it there's all this there's cosmic thing, yeah. ex- existential element that is informing all that and yeah. i think like just like matt's mentioned on previously we've talked about this but like that's what is not shown in the lobster series they they leave those panels out for yeah. whatever reason. I got the shakes. Yeah, whatever put him on his mission. Yeah, we are unaware. Yeah. Of. <laughs> so it's hard to say if he's a cipher for justice or a vigilante murderer. It's hard to say. Right. Yeah. Well. So you can only just enjoy it. <laughs> what if Edward Gray was in the lobster? Oh, that would what be so awesome. What if he embodied the lobster somehow? Oh, he wasn't okay. around. Yeah, he's missing from the equation there. Wait, when did Wouldn't old that be weird if he was like between planes of existence for a while or something? Right. I mean, right. I'm sure that's not it, but. Wait, when did old man uh, Gray get torn to pieces and sent to hell? 190 something, right? What was I saying the other day, John? I wanted to see uh, Lobster Johnson. Who's my favorite boy? Oh, Howard. Howard, Ted Howard. I want to see Ted Howard's Lobster Johnson and Edward Gray. And they're all hanging out, and that's the book. <laughs> and they're doing adventures. Nice. <laughs> yes, and, you know, Lobster could oh, be great. a ghost to make this work if we need to. Sure. Or I don't know, would the timeline work out? Is there a timeline that's... in which all three of them could do a thing? You well, do... we get two ghosts and uh, Howard's. Okay. <laughs> yeah, do like the Manolaverse League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Wouldn't that be good? Yeah. We that's have... more to be in there yeah. sorry uh, i'm rambling <laughs> <laughs> that's all good we had some feedback from mark tweedell mark tweedell he said in regards to the flashback with harry mctell in bprd the black goddess this was actually a teaser for guy davis's run on lobster johnson which ultimately didn't end up happening so guy davis was gonna have a run on the lobster that's crazy <laughs> what that would have been awesome would have been awesome Wait, so yeah, wait, which, that's exciting. Which story was the teaser? <laughs> was it the when he with that flashback in the Black Goddess? Oh, remember that we talked about last week? That was mirrored by Tanchi Zanyich in last week's story. Okay, but you know they, he could still do it. I mean, that story was just Harry telling another story. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Come on, guy, Davis, get back there. <laughs> <laughs> Early on, the next arc after Iron Prometheus was supposed to be drawn by Guy Davis. Whatever the lobster is, I don't think he's human. He just wears a human face. Okay. So Cindy's going off to Chicago, which is rather interesting because the lobster Johnson is famously known to operate mainly out of New York, 
But in the true history of Lobster Johnson, it said he also appeared in Chicago in the 1930s. Oh, shit. Ah, Okay. Curiously, Sir Edward Gray settled in New York for a bit before chasing the Heliopic Brotherhood of Ra to Chicago. Just before he got dragged into hell by Amduzias. Considering Memnon Sa once had dealings with the Heliopic Brotherhood, maybe the lobster follows an old Ed Gray case. Listen... This is awesome. Can we get Mark Tweedo <laughs> to write yeah. these? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I need to know if Ted Howard's ever went to Chicago, and if not, let's say that he did. Well, that's where they. That's where they, that found where they found the found sword. It? Yeah. What in the fuck are you talking about? To it me? was in Chicago. That's in where they found it. This yeah. is my thing. This is what I'm saying. Wouldn't this story be so good? <laughs> oh man. Time all together. Because Howard's found the sword uh, in the same room that Edward Gray got sent to hell. Yes, You're right. Exactly. I. Oh my. How could I even forget that for a second? You're right. That did happen. <laughs> Jeez, man. <laughs> As for Lobster Johnson Volumes 2 through 6, they cover his career from 1932 to 1936. The the Iron Prometheus is 1937, and 1939 was Hunt Castle. Omnibuses collect three trades. We've already got six, so there's probably another three left. One of them has got to be the Chicago Ark. One of them is possibly The Lobster and His Coot Tracking Memnon Sa. Those last two books may not be separate books, either. And it would be great for one to be the lobster in Solo in Europe hunting Nazis. Mm. There's one last complication. The latest story, The Empty Chair, that's the one shot that we haven't read yet, is in 1930. So there's potentially more stuff to tell pre The Burning Hand. My guess is Omnibus 1 is an unwritten book. The Burning Hand, and Satan Smells a Rat. Omnibus mm. 2 is Get the Lobster, A Chain Forged in Life, The Pirate's Ghost, and Metal Monsters. And Omnibus 3 is The Iron Prometheus, followed by two unwritten arcs. Oh, okay. Just in terms of being tidy, this puts all the Memnon Saw stories into a single Omnibus 2. Here are Mignola's thoughts from an interview in 2018. And so he posted this interview. It says, quote, We know John's story eventually has to butt up against the Iron Prometheus. We're pretty much there. So I literally don't know what John is doing next, admitted Mignola. We've discussed where things go after the Iron Prometheus. John is really best completely left to his own devices. Hmm. We had a conversation some time back about the basic number of books that get the Lobster Johnson not only past the Iron Prometheus, but then we butt up against the beginning of Hellboy Conqueror Worm. There's a finite number of Lobster Johnson books to be done. Okay. Yeah. First of all, it's super cool that to have someone like Mike Mignola say that he's got total faith in you doing your own thing and how that's how he thinks you work best and get the best results when he has less involvement that's what a what a huge compliment that is that's awesome but yeah that's interesting to know that's good information and mark also said tanchi zanya is drawing the lobster from 2011 to 2017 so he earned a break (laughs) we may not get a new lobster johnson story for some time but i feel like the empty chair in the 1930s is kind of an unspoken promise that there will be more eventually. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, so thank you for all that, Mark. Jan Niklas Jan also, Niklas. he responded to Mark's comments. He said, I hope so. The lobster is the best character along with Frankenstein. And he also said, I still think he's some kind of revenge-driven ghost that feeds on other people's vril. Nice. But he only kills evildoers because... They are as his prey. Huh. Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting, too. But to talk about what Jan Niklas was saying, 
how he's a guy that is feeding off of the thing. Yeah. I think he just really likes justice, honestly. Ah, okay. He just, just likes be it. That. Yeah. Likes it a lot. When I posted the side-by-side comparison of Guy Davis and Tanchi Zanyich's work on that flashback, Raymond Noble said, must have drawn him with Rando Hatton in mind. <laughs> so I wasn't, I wasn't familiar with Rando Hatton, but thank you, Raymond. He posted a picture, and so the Guy Davis version of Harry McTell looks a lot like that actor. Oh, okay. It sorry, really sorry. There's a, an actor a, named Rando? His name is Rando Hatton, and he's an old school actor. I should have looked this up, but he's like a black and white films actor. Name and he man, looks Rando. a lot like Harry McTell in those Guy Davis flashbacks. Huh. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that, thank you for posting that. Everybody also loved my Abe sweater. Nice. I was really surprised at how much attention that received. I told you, it looks like Abe sweater. I told you. And so I had just worn it to work that day. And when I got home, I was like, hey, take a picture of this sweater. Because, you know, everyone's always talking about this will make a good content uh, or whatever. Good. So that was, uh, thank you for all the comments on that. We also had some behind the scenes talk with Mark on Twitter this week. He said, I've been adjusting the reading plan for the Hellboy Book Club in 2020. It's scary how quickly this stuff adds up. So many episodes. (laughs) And so Nathaniel Green commented and he said, I think about this all the time, not to look a gift horse in the mouth, but I'd love a kind of behind the scenes look at how the reading order has been originally developed and since changed. And so I thought that was a great question. And thank you so much, Mark, for responding to him. If anyone's curious... Mark said, it's not really as complicated as you think. We divide everything into blocks and try to find breakpoints so we aren't stuck on the same material for too long. They just finished a Lobster Johnson block, and next up they'll be doing a block that'll wrap up Hellboy in Hell, Ape Sapien, and BPRD Hell on Earth, and then we're going to switch gears to something else. It's also about adapting to the needs of the show, trying to keep the episodes from getting too long. The thing that always surprises me is how much more there is to cover still. We also adjust things to fit in with certain events. So, for example, we changed the schedule to get to the Wild Hunt sooner than we had originally planned so we could talk about it before the movie. Interesting. And more recently, Mark bumped up the schedule so we could get a change forged in life on Christmas Eve. So thank you, Mark, for posting all that. Yeah, thank you, Mark, for all the hard work you do on that. Yeah, and I added a comment to just say that how incredibly fortunate are we to have Mark Trudeau. I mean, he is the gold standard when it comes (laughs) to... to researching this stuff and talking about it and to have him kind of at our backs and supporting us. It gives me a lot of confidence to do this show. Like you said, how lucky are we that he's working with us on this? And, and, you know, we've had him on for a couple episodes and he was so great. And we're going to have him on for uh, some more coming up as well. So thank you so much, Mark. And we really appreciate everything that you're doing. He's And like he said, he posted on Twitter, he's reworking the whole reading order for us right now for, for this coming year. So again... Love you, Mark Tweedell. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thanks you for all the hard work. Super good. (laughs) All right, and now we're going to get to our book club episode for the week. This week we're talking about Rise of the Black Flame. This is a five-issue miniseries published from September 2016 to January 2017, written by Mignola and Chris Roberson, illustrated by Christopher Mitten. So Christopher Mitten, this is the first time getting him on the Mignolaverse, but he's going to do some other work coming up. He's an American comic book artist. He's also done Batman, Legends of the Dark Knight, American Vampire, and 30 Days of Night. Colors by Dave Stewart and letters by Clem Robbins. 
Did you already say that the covers were done by Lawrence Campbell? Oh, thank you so much, Aubrey. Yes, and the cover and the chapter breaks and the trade are by Lawrence Campbell. Thank you for including that. And so let's talk about yeah. this chapter one cover. Um, one thing I want to say is like these covers are scary. Yeah. Like, these are like yeah. these, these images are like they're they're very frightening on a very visceral level. We'll get to it when we get to that last issue cover. But yeah, oh my God, there's there's something that he does where it just adds this very ominous element. All the stuff that's leading up into the skull on the black flame here, it almost looks like kind of like rock formation, then also bodies. Yeah. You know? Oh, wow. That's his thick, weird neck, his yeah. bro neck. It again reminds me, uh, Jerry Turnbull sent me this a long time ago, and I'll have to look for it again. There's a lava formation, but it looks like all like bodies oh, yeah. being pulled down, Ooh. just the way that it's formed. And it looks exactly like this. I wonder if that inspired this. I'll have to post a side-by-side -side with that. It's a very famous image, and I think Jerry Turnbull posted it because it, we had another thing that kind of looked like that mm. in a different episode. Uh, we got to talk about this first page. This reminds us of all the intertwining events involving the Black Flame from previous series. I like this depiction of Liz. It's neat. Yeah, we oh, get yeah. the June 2014. This is where Liz confronted the Buff Flame <laughs> in the other realm, or like Aubrey called it, the Black Flame's apartment. No, yeah. it's, his, it's his office. <laughs> his office. That's what you said. Oh. It looked very, it, but it was very uh, Kirby-esque. Yeah. Like Doctor Strange-ish oh, yeah. type stuff. It was super good. And so if you recall some of the things that he's saying, he's speaking very like esoterically or whatever. And he says, the perfect song of the void is only beautiful if you can hear it. Mighty music, but not mine. The throbbing of life. All life is what's precious. Okay. We also see March 2006. This is BPRD, the Black Flame. And we see the Black Flame with the frog monsters. We see October 1944, Sledgehammer 44, Lightning War. This is the Black Flame versus Redding in the Sledgehammer armor. And then we also see February 1932 from Lobster Johnson, the Burning Hand, with Ryman Diestel being introduced to... Uh, Wald. Yeah, being introduced to Wald and Isog, yeah. So that's his version of Isog? I think so, yeah. That's awesome. I didn't even get that, but you're right, Aubrey, that is him, because he's all dressed in white. Oh, and it's in a, he, he's introducing Kamala and the Black Flame. Yeah, you're absolutely right. He, yeah, I was just like, oh, shit. Yeah, and so I always love when they recount these events, so I'm going to have to post, you know, for my post this week, parallels between the original Arden and these ones. We then cut to May 1923, and we see this monk in a blue robe, and he's speaking in this language that says, translated from Funanese. Hear us, great darkness, whose skin burns with the brilliance of a million black fires of dissolution. You are the origin of all things and devourer of all things. Your perfect song can be heard in the void, but also in the hum deep within all living things in this breathing world. Though having form, you are formless. Though you are without beginning, so you are without end. I really like the um, del very delicate line work and just the way that the motifs in the stone are represented and the, yeah. the the all the texture on the whatever tree roots and the various grasses and rocks and stuff like that it's just very super delicate but um as a whole 
Super strong. I really like it. Yeah, Christopher Mitten has this amazing style. You can definitely see why they wanted to pull him into the mm-hmm. Mignolaverse, and he does some other books down the line as well. Yeah. You know, when we get to the sketchbook, we'll talk about it more, but like, he just sent them like some drawings of some ancient temples and all this kind of stuff oh, cool. to get the job. And then they were like, you got it. Yeah. You hell know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, Anyone who can draw ancient temples like that is. Uh... Yeah, I did read that in the sketchbook. That was actually pretty cool. Yeah, there's some really good stuff. I'll post them online this week. I recently saw an interview with the artist and he was talking. It was for the Criterion collection of Lone Wolf and Cub movies. Oh, nice. And the, the artist was talking about. He, he was calling them marks. He's like, I really like the marks he's making. That's why I make a lot of those marks, too. And he's just talking about his line work. That's great. You're talking about Christopher Mitchell? No, this artist was just talking about it, the comics, Lone Wolf and Cub. Oh, okay. And how he liked the original artist, the marks that he was making. And he said that inspired a whole another generation of artists to make similar marks. Oh. And so what he means is like the line work. Right, yes. I think what Mitten does, he his marks end up looking kind of mosaic. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, that's a great like way to describe it. I love that. Yeah, like a bunch of pieces. You know, I think it's really cool. Yeah, but yes, yeah, also very delicate. I like that. I also like the. I've never heard that marks before. That's so interesting. I never heard either. Yeah, cool. I like the way that the from a narrative standpoint, where it starts in 2014 and then just counts back to. 1923 and that's like all right here's where our story begins right we're going um, back in time yeah, yeah. And, and it's uh, not a super long it's just one page's worth of you know oh, yeah. I to think catch us up on what's going on it's like a nice i guess like setting up framing device mm-hmm. yeah yeah, yeah. well that first page is basically all of my least favorite moments from <laughs> from these comics on one goddamn page yeah, right <laughs> but then this guy is basically saying he has very similar language and phrasing to the Black Flame. Right. Oh, yeah, you're right. So I did want to talk about this. It says translated from Funanese. Funan was the name given by Chinese cartographers, geographers, and writers to an ancient Indianized state, or rather a loose network of states, or mandala, located in mainland Southeast Asia centered on the Mekong Delta that existed from the 1st to 6th century CE. The name is found in Chinese historical texts describing the kingdom, and the most extensive descriptions are largely based on the report from two Chinese diplomats. Funan is now known in modern languages to describe that region. However, the name Funan is not found in any of the text or local origins from that period, and it is not known what name the people Funan gave to their own society. Some scholars argued that ancient Chinese scholars described the word Funan from a word related to the Khmer word, meaning mountain. Mm. Others, however, thought that Funan may be not a transcription at all, rather it is meant what it says in Chinese. Like the name of the kingdom, the ethno-linguistic nature of the people is subject to much discussion among specialists. The leading hypothesis are that these Funanese constructed a multi-ethnic society. The available evidence is inconclusive on this issue. Michael Vickery has said that even though the identification of the language of Funan is not possible, the evidence strongly suggests that the population was Khmer, which is a group that's native to Cambodia. So there is a lot of mystery wrapped up in this Funanese culture, which is like the perfect thing for the Mignola people to like come in and go, okay, we're going to put our own spin on this. Mm. Of course. Mm -hmm. Cutting back to this monk, 
you know, he sees there are these kind of like soldiers or something, and they have these black hoods fucking on. Goobers, more it's like, like how it. can they see anything, right? You know, and they have the swords too. And he also says, so he's speaking some of that kind of, we've talked about that hyperborean language. He's saying some of that to them, and then they say something back. And then he says back, and it's translated, your time comes again, great darkness. This life will end so that yours may begin again. And he points to this girl that's bound. And so that just kind of sets up all this weirdness. Okay, well, they've got this girl, and they're going to do something to her, right? Well, they're going to. They're going to kill her. And I assume that those hoods are like linen because you'd be able to see out of that. Right. Or something. But yeah, yeah. it looks it, but not it, doesn't, in. it doesn't look like that. These guys are fucking yeah. dorks. If this was the it's 90s, weird. they would be drawn with like every single possible muscle would be accented. Like their abs would have abs. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be so weird. But they, you know, of course, because this is beautiful Hellboy and BPRD world, we've got a lovely artist who knows how to draw actual humans. So they look like normal humans. Right. It's super good. Okay, so when I first saw it, the first thing I thought it was um, executioners, but with yeah. katana-like swords. <laughs> oh, okay, right. Yeah, they do have that look, though. We cut to Rangoon, British colonial Burma. And so regarding British rule in Burma... It'll always be Burma to me. That's from Seinfeld, yeah. I mean, you can't leave. I've already left, Elaine. I'm in Burma. <laughs> Burma? Uh, you most likely know it as Myanmar, but it'll always be Burma to me. <laughs> this lasted from 1824 to 1948 after three successive Anglo-Burmese wars. The British seized Yangon, which is what it's called now, and all of Lower Burma in the Second Anglo-Burmese War, and subsequently transformed Yangon into a commercial and political hub of British Burma, which is at that time Rangoon. After World War I, Rangoon became the center of the Burmese independence movement, with the leftist Rangoon University students leading the way. Three nationwide strikes against the British Empire in 1920, 1936, and 1938 all began in Yangon. So there is a lot of, there's a lot of historical fiction wrapped up in this place as well. It's Myanmar now, isn't it? I think so, it yeah. Is. And we focus in on this house. Which, look at the, lo- I'm sorry to keep interrupting, but look, the colors on, you know, the grass isn't just green. It's got, you've got this shade of green, you've got yeah. that shade of green, you've got like 13 different shades, and then you've also got little brown spots that might be soil or maybe where the grass is browning a bit it looks like an actual someone's garden it looks like real plants live there and it's very so if you look at like how they've allowed part of the lawn to get kind of yellow or brown that's just little things like that are chef's kiss yeah i love that and like the paint on the house you know not all of it is the same color some of it is a little faded or rusted or maybe peeled up or a bit discolored just because of you know how old the house is and that yeah. really sets the anyway sorry i just oh, i love that yeah Mitten does a great job with setting us up inside we're introduced to sergeant McAllister and constable sanhu and they're meeting with mr aylesworth McAllister. i love these guys mm-hmm. i know yeah. these guys are great yeah McAllister. i want more from them McAllister and Sanhu, they're members of the Indian Imperial Police, or simply Imperial Police. This guy is, what's his face? Uh, that what's Who's that actor that is in uh, <laughs> uh, the, the most recent uh, Star Wars? He's uh, hanging out with uh, Hux. Hux. Oh, uh, who's that guy. Domhnall Gleeson. Domhnall Gleeson. Okay, that's, yeah, that's this I like guy. him. That's this guy. 
What was I going to say? Oh, so the Imperial Police, this was the uniform system of police administration in British India, as established by the India Act 5 of 1861. In 1920, the Imperial Indian Police had 310,000 police in their contingent. George Orwell, under his real name Eric Blair, served in the Imperial Police in Burma from October 1920 to December 1927, which is this time frame, which I thought was interesting. I was going to bring that up too. He eventually resigned while on leave in England, having attained the rank of Assistant District Superintendent at District Headquarters. He wrote about these experiences in a few of his books, quote, I loved Burma and the Burman, and have no regrets that I spent the best years of my life in the Burma police. Did you ever read the books he wrote? Uh, he wrote no. uh, Burmese Days. Right, and Shooting the Elephant, I think, yeah. also takes place in that in Burma. That one's like a short story, but um, I've actually read Burmese Days. It's, it's actually pretty good. Yeah, I need to check that one out. Yeah, it's the other Orwell book that I've read. Okay. Uh, you know, because you know, everybody's read Animal Farm in 1984. Right. Nobody's ever heard of any of his other stuff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so these two, they're investigating the kidnapping of Aylesworth's daughter. And Mr. Aylesworth is pretty inconsolable. And just like Danielle was talking about, like, the color like i like how the bottom of his nose is red when yeah. he looks up and he's yeah. all like he can't even talk the to the bottom detectives. of his eyes are red like he's been rubbing yeah. them and crying and uh even the little you get the impression that he's sobbing because of teeny tiny empty word bubbles right the sounds are him those individual sobs like right. it's just such a wow yeah, yeah i love that also this guy is alan tudyk Okay, <laughs> Mr. Ellsworth. <laughs> the woman who I assume is Mrs. Ellsworth, she says the girl was visiting Cantonment Gardens with her governess or in-home teacher. That's what a governess would have been at the time. Cantonment Gardens in Rangoon are now called Kanta Mangalar Gardens. And according to their website, it's an ideal place, the highlight being a beautiful lake with pedal boats or rowboats. There's also a nice little pavilion selling interesting souvenirs, and the Golden Duck restaurant location inside the park is another favorite spot. And so there are a lot of postcards I found on eBay. There's are tons of postcards from the 1900s of Cantonment Gardens. So it was like this uh, very extravagant like tourist attraction and one of the highlights of the region. Neat. Are you going to post any of the posts? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll see if I can get some good screen grabs of them. They didn't think there was anything to worry about since sometimes they stay out late, but then the governess was found dead and the girl was missing. The groundskeeper saw someone in a black hood lurking around, but didn't think of anything until after. And so we've seen these guys with the black <laughs> hoods. So we've seen that they just walk around shirtless with just a black hood on their head. And so the groundskeeper saw this guy walking around, didn't think anything. He's okay. like, serious? He was like, yeah. <laughs> That's just a Tuesday. Sergeant McAllister, or Dom Hall Gleason, says <laughs> that they will not rest until they find her. And what, so... Uh, what's a, uh, the girl? She was John Raffio's sister. Jenny, oh, Jenny Slate. Jenny Slate. Yeah. There you I, go. I would love to put her in here, too. She's Mrs. Woman. Ellsworth. Yeah. yeah, there you go. <laughs> I love her. So outside, McAllister and San Hu talk. That's a bit of a rum do, Sandhu says. Fuck does that mean? Sandhu, you remain a master of understatement, McAllister says. That's a bloody mess is what it is. It's a bloody piccadilly. 
You really think we've any hope of finding the girl, Sergeant? Sanhu asks. We must try our best, McAllister says. What other hope does the poor lass have? And we see them leave out. And so we cut to the minister's building, also called the minister's office, and known today as the Secretariat. This was the home of the administrative seat of British Burma. And a crowd has formed out front. McAllister and Sanhu meet with another imperial police, this bearded guy, Townsend. He mentions being at the Pegu Club. The Pegu Club is a recognized heritage site in Rangoon, Burma, now Yangon, Myanmar, which was a Victorian-style gentleman's club founded in 1871 nice. during the British colonization of Myanmar. Hell yeah. The building was built in 1880 and finished in 1882. Pegu Club used to be a place for British officials to spend their time for a drink or two, and it is well known for their signature Pegu Club cocktail oh yeah where all the ladies have super high collars and they lift up their edge of their skirts past their ankle and everyone whoops and hollers did you see that shoulder did you see her wrist her wrist mate anyway the bearded guy says there's been another kidnapping this time the willoughby's daughter constance there were witnesses that saw a guy in a black hood and a good samaritan who tried to stop the guy was killed during the struggle, the kidnapper dropped a Siamese ten satang coin. McAllister thinks it might be the same guy as the Aylesworth case. And Sandhu reminds them that there's been a third kidnapping as well. A shoekeeper's daughter. The bearded guy is like, Burmese children, who cares about them? Jeez. But two English girls missing is too, too many. Oh, no. I don't know about that. That's ridiculous. There are a lot of subtle things in here with Sandhu where you realize, like, he's on the edge of that and he's trying to be like, oh, don't forget about this minority girl because he's a minority also um, among all these uh, British people. Well, and that's something that, you know, is still happens even today in in America where a lot of people talk about, hey, this white girl's been missing everybody. Let's look for her. And then Uh, all these parents of these black girls that are missing, they're like, no one's looking for my daughter. And it's a whole thing. So this happens. So it's cool that they brought that up in this comic. I like that they dedicated some time to that you know yeah let's not uh let's not do that bullshit and McAllister, he thinks all this might represent a resurgence of the thug cult he mentions sleeman ending the reign of thugs in the last century and so this is a reference to major general sir william henry sleeman he was a british soldier and administrator in, in british india he is best known for his work in the 1830s in suppressing the organized criminal gangs known as the thuggy Thuggy refers to the acts of thugs, an organized gang of professional robbers and murderers. The English language word thug traces its roots to the Hindi thag, which means swindler or deceiver. Mm. This term describing the murders and robbery of travelers is popular in the northern parts of the Indian subcontinent and particularly India. Thugs considered themselves children of Kali, created from their sweat. However, many of the thugs who were captured and convicted by the British were Muslims. Mm. According to colonial sources, thugs believed they had a positive role in saving human lives. Without the thugs' sacrifice service, Kali might destroy all mankind. Hmm. So they were kind of like extremists also who, you know, were committing these crimes in the name of some religious reason. Right, but yeah, okay. And Hashtag so, thug life. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that, Matt. Okay. 
And so McAllister says the thugs are murderers and that their murders are a blood sacrifice to Kali. Mm. Kali is the Hindu goddess of time, creation, destruction, and power. And she is one of the ten Mahavidyas. McAllister says... Now you're getting this from... Uh, all this is from Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Yeah, thank so, you for that. a brief aside, I we have a friend named Shamik. I wanted to talk to him before this to get a... You know, first-hand account of... Because, okay, well, this is... Let me go back uh, a second. A while back, I posted a video that I really liked. It was a song where there was an actor portraying Kali and dancing around. And it was a super cool song and super cool dance. And I really liked it. So I posted it. And he left a comment. Just out of curiosity, why did you post this video? I'm curious because uh, uh, he was saying, Bengali Hindus, like my people, are the primary worshippers of Kali. So I wanted to ask. And I was like, oh, well, I just really like this video. And it's really cool. I think it's fascinating, all this stuff. And so we got to talking about it. I have had limited exposure to your religion, but I think that this is cool. So let's talk about this. And he was like, yeah, I would love to. And so I wanted to get a deeper appreciation of, you know, the history, the art and, and the ideas as much as like someone living in Texas can, you know, I, so I, I asked him if he would mind talking about this um, so I could talk about it on the show, but he, he didn't really have time this week. And so he was saying maybe next week. So if it's cool with you, maybe I can include some of his comments in next week's episode, but I, I thought it would be cool just to get a first hand source for this, as opposed to, I know we get a lot of information off of Wikipedia and all that, but I thought it would be cool to get like an actual worshiper of Kali to comment on, on this since, uh, she does make an appearance here. So anyway, hopefully that'll I'll get to talk to him about that. Yeah, and that is a really cool video. It's I'll super have to cool. Post yeah, that this week it's a really great um it's a really great music video. Yeah, and Kali is depicted here. Right. Yeah. Thank you for doing that. It'll fit in perfectly with our listener feedback. Nice. McAllister says that maybe Sleeman didn't get all the thugs. But Sanhu thinks it could all be made up. Townsend, the bearded guy, doesn't quite buy this connection with the kidnappings and the Siam cult, but says if there's a chance, they should check it out. And so we cut to McAllister and Sanhu in Bangkok, and they're just walking around asking where the bad guys are. You know, (laughs) I don't think it's working out for them. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) They totally stand out, and Sanhu realizes that they're attracting the wrong attention. He tells Sergeant McAllister, and McAllister reminds him that they are out of their jurisdiction. They're private citizens. Sanhu is worried about the locals, but McAllister tells him to toughen up, lad. When I was your age back in London, I saw things that toughened me up right quick. Strange things. Yeah, I did that by walking around asking everyone where the bad guys were <laughs> like a fucking idiot. Look at the panels on that page, Shit. though. See how they're outside of the border at the bottom? Oh, yeah. So oh, you... yeah, where, the, where they're walking up. Yeah, that That's is That's an interesting really nice. choice. Yeah. I really like that. Yeah, thank he, you for pointing that out. He didn't have to put them in there at all. So it's just kind of cool that he did that overlapping. It really makes you feel like they're outsiders, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, so we got to talk about this flashback, right? So we cut to McAllister, and he's like a cop, right? He's got like that classic uh, English cop hat on. What and- is with that chin strap? Right. <laughs> it looks a little restrictive there. He's witnessing this giant tentacled monster coming out of the ground. So, you know, like we're in a Mignolaverse book, so one of these is going to pop out at some point. And it's so awesome. I love the color because it's a flashback, so it's got the sepia tones, but you can really kind of see um, the color within the monster is kind of like this pinkish purple yeah. or whatever. And it's a wicked looking design. It's too. really great. 
And so we see this woman, and she's with Sir Edward Gray. Holy shit. All right. Eddie, we need to get these folks clear of here before this thing gets its appetite back. And so Edward Gray turns around and he sees McAllister. You there, officer. Clear the area immediately. Never walked across Ludgate Circus again without a shiver running up my spine, McAllister says. And so he mentions Ludgate Circus. This is a road junction in the city of London where Farrington Street and Newbridge Street cross Fleet Street and Ludgate Hill. Historically, the main connection between the City of London and the City of Westminster, Ludgate Circus, is situated on the course of the River Fleet. And so that's a pretty uh, famous area for that monster to be coming up. McAllister says they'll need to stay another week. They're supposed to be discreet, but he wants to use a more direct method. Discreet, a voice asks. And so they turn around and they see this woman there. You boys are awful nosy. They see a woman, otherwise known as Angelica Houston. Angelica Houston, okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so she says, you boys are awful nosy for people trying to be discreet. Might as well hang a banner from the tallest spire of the Grand Palace the way you're banging around. (laughs) And McAllister's like, I'm sure I don't know what you mean, madam. She's like, well, you're bad at being spies, so jot that down. (laughs) She says, you're hunting for bad eggs, but you're looking in all the wrong nests. I think I know where you should be looking. Buy a drink for me and my friend, and just might be, I'll tell you. Nice. And so, yeah, I really like this. Um, She's willing to help them out, even though they're being absolute fucking (laughs) ding-dongs. So, is this simply a ruse to get your refreshments free of charge, McAllister asked. What's (laughs) next? Some exciting investment opportunities to suggest? Listen, y'all are the ones who are the idiots, so pipe down over there. And Sandhu says, what my associate means to say is, what do you know about thuggies? The woman says this doesn't have anything to do with the thugs. And she introduces herself as Sarah Jewell and her traveling companion. Her traveling companion. Mm, mm. That's Marie Therese Lafleur, Played by Iman. Okay. <laughs> Bonjour, Lafleur says. And McAllister's shocked. He remembers Sarah Jewell. She was the one with the shotgun in that Edward Gray flashback we just saw. It was a horrific event for him, but Jewell barely remembers that. (laughs) Was that the time the heliopic bozos accidentally summoned the goat thing, she asks? I love that. (laughs) Yes. Oh, I remember. The critter at Ludgate, she says. She wouldn't call it horrific. A nuisance, maybe, she says. She and Kate should have dinner and hang out. (laughs) They look like they would be such a good fucking team. She is like Kate. That's such a great parallel. She's like this time period's version of Kate. She's just an old spy (laughs) who's reminiscing about good old spy times when she was in the field and fighting monsters. And she seems so put together and so unflappable and just like totally calm about the whole fucking thing i would she's, yeah she's would, reminiscing like those were the good old days yes, dude she says i spent a lot of years hunting monsters and chasing ghosts but the ones i spent palling around with eddie were the most fun so good and so she explains her backstory she started out as a girl studying exorcism to get rid of a poltergeist in an asylum then she traveled to africa asia near east and far even fought a manticore in a parisian harem and so here we see, I like that uh, little flashback panel there. A manticore is a mythical beast, typically depicted as having the body of a lion, the face of a man, and the sting of a scorpion or poisonous quills. But it looks like this one has a cobra tail. 
Which yeah. I thought was like, that's an interesting interpretation it's a of that. subspecies. Yeah. <laughs> that's a variant it's of a, it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm surprised we haven't run into a Manticore yet. I think like when we, w- the Marquis, uh, remember the Marquis in uh, yeah. the Universal Machine? I, there was something in his right, thing right. that kind of looked like a manticore, right. but I couldn't figure out what it was. Okay. Eventually, she found herself in London at a tavern called the Bar with No Doors. Oh, I mean the Silver Lantern Club, mm-hmm. right? Because <laughs> right. it reminds me of the Doctor Strange yeah. Bar with No Doors Super where good. all the magicians hang all out the magicians and stuff like hang that, out, right? The it kind of reminds me shit, of totally. it's like the Mignolaverse version of that. Which I love. Yes, super good. Eccentrics and adventurers. Yeah, they would all swap stories and partay. Mm-hmm. And we see Ed Gray there hanging nice, out. Nice. That's where she met Eddie. It's weird to hear someone call him Eddie, right? Oh, yeah. We don't even. Th- right. <laughs> I don't think of him as an Eddie. <laughs> no, well, is he knighted at this point? Or know. was he knighted? Oh, he know. was. Yeah, he yeah, was. Uh, if he was at Edward. that time, though, right? I don't. I have to look that up. That's a good question, Matt. Well, I was assuming that this was after her service to the Queen, so mm. yeah, I would think yeah, he would be a knight yeah. at this point. She worked with him for a few years. Nothing romantic, just a solid partnership. She followed him as he tracked the Heliopic Brotherhood, but eventually he went west and she went east, and I only saw him again once. And so here we see them going up against the were-yetis that we saw in BPRD, the Black Goddess. And so we know from that story that they were associated with the followers of Memnon Sa, the Twin Serpents. Jewel kept on traveling, mostly on her own, but she needed help from time to time. Marie Therese joined her after some nasty business in the Louisiana Bayou a while back. <laughs> and so we got to talk about this. Yeah, they're fighting, this look, fighting like some alligator men or something. Or... Well, they don't even look like they're fighting. They look like they're about to, to hash it out. Like, you Oh, know, okay. I love that. Maybe they're about to have a have a chat with them. You know, no one's attacking. Sure. But they, well, they're brandishing all these weapons. That's true. Well, but so it's, it's like, hey, we know we, you know, we're just coming to, to say, hey, we want to talk. That. Yeah. They're There's like. There's so much there. I want to know. I really that. do. Well, it's it's a really it's a good fucking panel. Well, I'm sitting here looking at these two pages, and I'm sitting here going, "That's six panels, and that's six different stories that we yes. could be reading yes. oh yeah. by yeah. themselves." That's great. <laughs> that could be good. thirty individual comics. Oh yeah, <laughs> at least. I mean, that could be two omnibuses on those there three, you go. two pages. Yeah. Yeah. I also love, like, I love the body language of the Gator people, but I also I love the. <laughs> reflection of the torches off the water oh, how like yeah. that is he made it look so easy and so effortless it's so beautiful and yeah. so right like it looks right you know yeah christopher mitten is killing this series and the the colors are so fucking good i also like how she mentions that she and eddie were just partners and there was nothing romantic there yeah because that, that's kind of something a little refreshing because you know you always see stories like as a man and a woman. They like, can't spend time together unless they're doing it. Exactly. Right, yeah. Ridiculous. Yeah. So it's, it's nice to see, you know, something like that at least, you know, nodded to. Sure, yeah, yeah. I like that. We had a fulfilling relationship even though we weren't doing it. <laughs> nice. McAllister says he wouldn't have believed a word of all that if he hadn't seen that creature at Ludgate. <laughs> Jewel and LaFleur say that they're in Siam on this kind of business. They've caught wind of some nasty business out in the jungle, a temple of the Black Flame, where there's blood sacrifice and who knows what other kinds of deviltry. (laughs) They they were going to head out and see what they can do about it. And so McAllister and Sanhu, they kind of look at each other. I love that panel where they're kind of like, hmm. 
McAllister realizes that they're looking for the same group and asks if he can accompany Jewel and LaFleur. Jewel says she doesn't mind, but points out they'll be following a guide she hired. Can he be trusted, McAllister asks. He's wrestled with his demon, sure, but who among us hasn't? <laughs> Whom's amongst us? <laughs> yeah, this guy is, is awfully bold, considering he can't get anywhere on his own. Right. To be like, oh, are you sure you know what you're doing? Like, <laughs> yeah, man, like, you... You wouldn't even have any leads if it wasn't for me. So, you know, maybe right. maybe take a back seat here, pal. And so we cut to this guy who we assume is their guide. His name is Farang, or at least that's what his landlord is calling him by, telling him that he's late on his rent. And so we see him. He looks pretty drunk. He's pretty fucked up. He smashes down on a mattress on the floor. He's got a kind of weird um, Constantine look to him. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. He does kind of look like Constantine. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, Where are you so going to say, am. Siam is now called Thailand. Thailand. Yes, okay. yes. That's why this is translated from Thai. You were probably going to say that. Sorry. And <laughs> they call him Farang. Do you know what that means? No, I just thought that okay, that was so, a, a name that he was using. Is that like a... Okay, so before they were the Germans, they were the Franks. Mm. And this is a Persian word for the Franks. Oh. And it's used in the Middle East and Southeast Asia for European-born you know, white guy, probably, right? Wow. So you like can Gringo or whatever, right? <laughs> you can assume that if they're calling him Farang, he has a German accent. Okay, dope. Oh. Uh, See, in my notes, I have him as Farang. Uh, because that's the only thing that they refer to him as until the mm-hmm. end, which is kind of the whole point of it. You just called him white right. boy throughout the whole episode. Right. Or nice. like, uh, yeah, yeah. The Frank. It's fine. The Frank. They call him yeah. Frank. That's, that's good. And there's a letter in the back of this first issue. Somebody wrote a letter based on the solicitation for this series. Oh, yeah. And they said, hey, Scott, is it weird that upon seeing the solicitation for Rise of the Black Flame, my first thought was of what Matt Strackbine would think? (laughs) And then so they reached out to me and asked me to provide a letter having not read it. Oh, no. They sent me the first issue to read oh wow that's nice but after i had written a letter and so i have a letter in here sharing my disdain for just the (laughs) fact that this series is about to exist and uh, i said yeah all right i know this is a prequel or whatever but it's the fact that this ugly mug keeps popping up over (laughs) and over again do i want to know more about the character ugh I guess, but only as it applies to the rest of the Hellboy universe. Yeah. Okay. Will I buy the comic? Of course. But I'll buy anything you put out. Yeah. So in in that case, why not make a book without the Black Flame for a while? <laughs> Jeez, man. It has an and and then it, it goes on to talk about, you know, some other uh, it just felt like we were getting too much black flame. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Oh, that is so funny. Thank you for sharing that. I, I was wondering what your reaction was to this. Yeah, I was I was like, come on. Now a whole series. <laughs> but the way that they went about it is, is really good, yeah. Yeah. All right, we got to talk about the cover yes. to chapter two because holy fuck. Yeah, this Lawrence Campbell incredible painting um, is doing an amazing job here. The and goddamn colors on this sky. I can't deal with it. 
Yeah. It, it, it's, it's beautiful. I'm actually about to make it my background. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. We open in Berlin, 1910. The sepia toned panels let us know that we're probably in a flashback here. Here we see the Bode Museum. This is one of the group of museums on Museum Island in Berlin, Germany. It was designed by architect Ernst von Innie and completed in 1904, originally called the Kaiser Frederick Museum after Emperor Frederick III. The museum was renamed in honor of its first curator, Wilhelm von Bode, in 1956. And this statue in the middle, so we kind of see this um, guy on a horse, this is the equestrian statue of King Frederick William I. And so we see the professor here, and he's talking to a group... And he tells them in German that as Germans, they take pride in these treasures not seen in a millennia. And he shows two Baz reliefs. One depicts Nergal, which we've heard Rasputin say. He called one of the Ogdruhem Nergal or something like that. The professor, he says that Nergal was worshipped all over ancient Mesopotamia as the embodiment of the winter sun or black sun. Nergal is awesome. The female figure seated on the right is assumed to be the Hatran goddess Adurgadis, but some believe she may instead represent Nergal's consort, Urshigal. Hell yeah, Urshigal is dope. So we've talked about Urshigal a lot in the past. If so, this would be the first and only known representation of the Babylonian goddess of the night. And so in Mesopotamian mythology, Urshigal, queen of the great earth, was the goddess of Kur, the land of the dead or underworld in Sumerian mythology. In later East Semitic myth, she was said to rule Urkala alongside her husband, Nergal. And so that's kind of what they're mentioning here. But I also like how he calls her goddess of the night because we know that she's associated with like the darkness and like when it tells the origin story in the Hellboy the Island that we were just talking about earlier, it's like that the Ogdrahem like was born of the darkness or they use that term darkness a lot. And so I like that he says goddess of the night because it kind of goes along with that. Well, the next page has such a beautiful depiction. Like we see this ancient art and then you turn the page and then you see the artist's actual like actual representation of the living goddess and it's so cool like when i first read the story i was looking back and forth between the two pages and like Uh. this the very like calm statuesque art and then the the living representation it's just really really beautiful the way that he chose to do that i really like that yeah this work by mitten is just mind-blowing so we see this guy who we know is the frank right or frank and he lingers behind all the professors like this way students but he stays and he stays looking at that picture and then like danielle said we cut over and he sees like the living he's tripping out pretty hard Yeah, and Mitten is just killing it on this page as she's surrounded by all these relics and all this kind of stuff. And she calls out to him. She says, my child, my own. Do you hear that sound? It is the throbbing hum of the breathing world, the song of the void, which echoes inside every living thing. And in each echo, I am also there. Do you hear it? Hell yeah. And so, but this is very similar to all that mumbo jumbo that the Black Flame was saying, where he was like a mighty music and all this stuff. So we see this theme... (laughs) kind of running throughout it's fucking awesome is what it is so that 
That's not Hecate. I don't know. It's well, not, I, I think it's I, not Hecate in a, in dif- in a different form. Yeah. Something. And Mark Tweedo has a great article uh, about That's Hecate, which yeah, encapsulates right. everything that we're talking about right now. I'm going to have sure, to go reference sure. that for the listener feedback next week. I really should have looked at it this week, but there's just this this book has so many historical references right, that right, right. Like, I really there's so many notes for this story. So I looked it up. It's just speculation, no matter what. I don't think there's anything definitive, but I think this is Hecate. She has many names, kind of a thing. Oh, yeah. And has many forms, looks like a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but in essence is one archetype distilled. Hecate breathed life into the Andrew Jihad. Right. And Nurgle might have been one of them. Yes. Okay. She appears to have like a serpent body. Oh, you're right. right? Uh Yes. Yeah. Um, Which... Hecate is always kind of snake-like. This is a little bit more, I don't know, it looks like a fin, but I, I don't know. But um, you're right. So they have all these different names for her whenever she's beckoned or fishing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of them is Gorgo. Somewhere, I, I couldn't find where, they call her Gorgon's Eye. Mm-hmm. And uh, okay. do you know what a Gorgon is? Was it Medusa? Greek mythology, or... like Medusa was a Gorgon. Okay, yeah, I was going to yeah. say, was it Medusa one? And and so you don't want to look at their eyes, right? And so now think of like the symbol for the cult of the black goddess, and they're basically worshiping Hecate. Mm-hmm. That remember the amulet they had, which was like a skull with two snakes coming out of the eyes. Oh, yeah. oh right. And those were the two serpents you always see with Hecate, and they're coming out of the eye. Yeah. So the eyes are significant. And now here you have these giant eyes. The whole pages, yeah. Yeah, and that's all they are. And right. I immediately thought to Sledgehammer. Yes, that's what I thought yeah. as well. Yeah. Are, is I don't know if they're the same eyes. Those could be the the Vril eyes, right? The Maybe eyes. That's and the, these are the uh, anti-Vril. I love that eyes, right? So, isn't it cool to think that in Lightning War, Black Flame is seeing eyes that are talking to him just the same way? Sledgehammer, yes. seeing eyes Amazing. that are talking to him. Super Amazing. cool. But they yes. just left it out. They yeah. just left those scenes out. And that and that really informs what's going on with the buff flame because we see that right. he's like communicating with the cosmos and all this crazy stuff. Yeah. And so wow. here's the thing: where does the power? So is Hecate the origin of dark power or the black sun? Right. Is, where's that power originate? Is there just a natural opposition to? the light which is dark and is that evil or is evil what humans do with yeah that we assigned that right to like it. i feel like yeah. it's a natural it has to uh, be conflicting force there exactly not evil yeah yeah light and, and dark so it's on and what off they, yeah so when he says we'll bring you uh, like he was saying at the very beginning before they sacrificed that kid he was saying we will give you like rebirth or something like that. Mm. Like, did anybody ask for that, or are you doing that on your own? Right. right. Yeah. Wow. And so here she is communicating with a person. But- that monk was trying to bring it about himself, but here the black goddess is apparently reaching out to. Oh, friend. right. Well, you've you've brought up something that is actually something that I am super fascinated with. The you know the idea of. Like, like, you're, like is it, is it like who's like, evil? Yeah, Which well, part well, of this is not just that, but like evil. you're saying, oh, there there is a thing, and there is the absence of that thing. There's light, there's dark, there's up and down, mm-hmm. there's going to be as above, so below. That's that's a yeah, concept that cold. you find in a lot of 
magical thinking and all that sort of stuff. We've had to look at a lot of a lot of stuff like that with this series, like what your frame of reference is and you got power, but what are you gonna do with it? That type right, of thing. Right. And so that's yeah, that's super interesting. I like that. But I think for every time Hecate has shown up, it's always been to to tell Hellboy, like, you know we're in this together, yeah. right? Whether yeah. you like it or not. But then you have all these cults and stuff that are worshiping her. Right. And I'm not sure she ever really asked for that. Nah. Mm. I mean, okay. she's a vampire, right? And she's the black goddess. Right. I mean, what, she killed Toth, drank his blood, puked it out, and painted the secret history of the world on the walls of his palace or something. Yeah. That what? sounds evil. <laughs> <laughs> like what an evil person would do, but maybe it was... I think he that's a. I think natural. that's a. That's a. If you build it, they will come. Kind of a situation. Mm, okay. Yeah, right. She's just doing her thing, and then she can't help but that there's all these people that are kind of drawn to that. Maybe you know. Suddenly, Farang is woken up. Someone's kicking him on the back, and he's like, "What? Wake up, lazy bastard!" It's that same guy, in right? His face. He's like, "Some people here to see you. Nice people. Better than you, anyway." Jeez, damn. <laughs> and so he's introduced to Jewel and McAllister, and he's like, "Oh, good morning, Sarah. Is it Tuesday already?" And she's like, "It's Thursday. I got tired of waiting for you, so I came looking for you." And so she pays the landlord. Um, who was asking for the rent. I like those lines, his reaction lines as she throws him the coin or whatever. <laughs> she goes, consider that an advance on your payment. You're working for me now. What bliss, uh-huh. Frank says. Outside, Sandhu is with LaFleur, and he's curious about their adventures. He admits he's surprised that she could be so cavalier. He has a sister who is strictly sheltered at home, but would love to see more. But if she knew they were monsters... LaFleur says, I'm not scared of anything out in that jungle, Cher. Not after what I've already seen. I hate to nitpick, but I think it's uh, Cher. Oh, okay. Thank you for pointing that out. She says, I think there's a spark of darkness inside all of us. Something indwelling and born. Okay, right there. Go back to the first page of the first issue where Landis Pope, the buff flame, is saying all life is precious. Why would he say that if he's such an evil bastard? Right. But maybe the ability... Like, all life is precious, and it could be evil, or it could not be evil. Right. Hmm. And so, that's why the throbbing of life, as they keep calling it, is so important, because you don't know which way the tide is going to go. Ah, okay. Are people going to be more, um, is evil incarnate going to be the way forward, or is it going to be combative? Right. And so, I think they're touching on a really interesting theme that there's dark and there's light. That's not necessarily good and bad. Yeah, right. Absolutely. They're just opposing they're just forces. There. <clears throat> and well, La- they're balancing forces. I mean, you can't have one without the other. Yeah, and Lafleur yeah. says some of us manage to keep it buried, but some of us fan that spark into a flame. She mm-hmm. says, a uh, black mon- flame. "Yeah, <laughs> monsters don't bother me. It's the people I worry about." And so we get this beautiful scene with the boat here. Super um, good. This is amazing. But I do like these ominous eyes uh-huh. watching them as they're sailing along. Well, I like the little nature vignettes. Yeah. A little, there's a, just some water and then the next panel is a little crocodile pokes his head up above the water. And they take time to show that and the birds and stuff it sets the mood but yeah like you said there's some creepazoids lurking yeah. in the bushes here too so well i like in all these crocodiles at the bottom so there's cool. like a bunch of them yeah. that come yeah. out 
this uh, top panel, like when I was reading it, I just kind of stopped and stared at it for a while because it's, yeah. it's nice. It is, it is really nice. Some kind of just, super good. It's like the calm before the storm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> On the boat, McAllister and Jewel talk. He's getting impatient and thinks. This is a lot bet on one man, and such a dubious one. He asks Joel if she's certain that Frang knows where he's going. He sure seems to think he does. <laughs> At any rate, she responds. At night, LaFleur goes over to Frang and brings him some food after noticing he didn't come for dinner. She says she's noticed he doesn't seem at ease. I don't care much for the water, he says. Yeah, I do love all the little design choices within the boat and everything. Um, they do a really good job with the setting here. Just really beautiful work by Mitten and Dave Stewart. We cut to the group hiking through the jungle. And again, all the dense, you know, pencil lines and everything, all those marks. Really nice. Yeah. The group is getting tired of having to lug all their supplies up. Farang says they couldn't find any locals to help them, even when he said money was not an option. That's how he knows they're going the right way. Later that night, as they camp, we see some wombats or something crawling around. What are these little guys? Rodents. Yeah, some sort of rodents. <laughs> Suddenly, there's a shriek. McAllister and Sanhu come out of their tent, guns drawn. So do Jewel and LaFleur. They start following a sound and light a lantern. Well, I like the uh, little bit of a fake-out, too, too, because it's like it's starting off with the panel. It's like... You know, they're all asleep. The fire's dwindling, and here comes this red-eyed Oh, creature. yeah. And then all of a sudden, you hear the scream, and then it runs away. Right, yeah. Goes. So it's like a nice little fake out. This. Yeah, I like that. When they light the lantern, they hear a voice. Would not do that if I were you. We see Farang sleeping up high in a hammock. Inexplicable noises in the night, and your first instinct is to go towards them? I recommend staying put and keeping your voices down. I don't think I could sleep again after that, Jewel says. Perhaps we should rekindle the fire, McAllister says. And Farang, I like how the dialogue is small, like he's whispering. Under the circumstances, yeah. the darkness might make a better ally, he says. I've never heard such a sound before and have no notion what might have made it. I am not sure that I wish to find out. The next morning, they continue chopping through the jungle on their quest, and Sanhu notices that they do not hear any birds singing as they did yesterday. Joel mentions that they are moving in the direction of the sound that she heard last night. And then Farang notices all these dead animals. They look all desiccated. No blood spilled anywhere. Go back a page. Look at Farang in the top panel. Oh, right. As he's chopping through the jungle, he's all in black. Yeah, that is, that is very interesting. I love that. So when they find all the animals... You know, they mention that it smells really bad, but there's not a drop of blood anywhere. And Sanhu says that they look mummified, besides probably only being there a day or so. It reminds LaFleur of an exsanguination case, but there's no puncture wounds. It's like the life was drawn away, Jewel says. And so suddenly, Farang hears a sound. Giant pythons come out! Yay. <laughs> <laughs> Blimey, McAllister says. Don't just stand there, shoot, Jewel responds. And so they all start shooting at these enormous snakes that are coming out. And so one of them wraps up McAllister and starts taking him up into the tree. See now, are the snakes evil? No, they're being snakes. Are they evil for shooting the snakes or are they defending their lives? Right. Can I just this say it's like very atypical area. for Python's yeah. behavior? But yeah, I mean, like, you know... 
if they're defending their ecosystem or their whatever. Yeah, stay out of the jungle. Yeah, right? well, we're living here. They're, they're, they're so big. I mean, they see the humans like mice or something, which sure, is what maybe. they would yeah. probably eat. You know right. what I mean? San Hu tries to shoot at it, but LaFleur's like, careful, you might shoot your friend. He's dead if we don't, so I might as well try. And so they shoot at it. And Joel gets off a shot. Habitat, that's the word I was looking for, sorry. Uh, that's okay. And McAllister, he's saved, and he's like, nice shooting. Don't be too impressed, Joel says. I was aiming for its other eye. <laughs> I like how she's blowing the smoke from the... These two are so... LaFleur and Joel are such a great counterpart to McAllister yeah. and Sanhu because the two of them are all like, yeah. and then the other two are just really calm about the whole thing, even though like, <laughs> you know, there are tense situations. I also wonder like if they weren't there, if they would have even had to oh, yeah. kill these snakes or if they would have been able to like avoid them because like, I can also see how they might be a little able to be a little more stealthy and these guys are just like tromping through the fucking jungle <laughs> super loud. And... LaFleur, she calls everybody over. She notices this shape on the ground. Oh, jeez. Looks almost like a summoning pentacle, she says. And Sandhu says it's reminiscent of tantric yandras in India. I found this on moonlightsmagic.com. Pentacles represent magical energies, and any design or shapes could be considered pentacles if they were drawn with five points. They are often referred to as hexagrams, not pentagrams. Pentacles were often used for protection against demons and negative entities. They were used and are still used extensively for these purposes. In general, I think modern usage is to quote-unquote draw down power or right. to redirect powers into specific intentions, things like that. And tantric yandras. A yandra is a geometrical pattern made of several concentric circles. The point, Bindu, at the center of the yantra signifies unity, the origin, the principle of manifestation, and emanation. A yantra is the equivalent of the Buddhist mandala. Which is to say that it has a lot more to do with like focusing your... And- and, and to make it a little bit more interesting and, and such. Yeah, it says, according to Tantra, the creation of the world begins with the act of division of the opposites that are united in the deity. Mm. And so that's kind of exactly what yeah. we're talking about, right? This like kind of splitting right. in the explosion of energy kind of creates these two sides. There's matter and antimatter and there's there's existence and there's absence and there's there's on and there's off. Even when you come down to like quantum entanglement and all this this stuff, like you get down to like states of matter and mm. and all that that type of thing where it's like the zero and the one. Right, you know what I mean? Okay. Like so it's yeah. So that theme like exists throughout all these kind of throughout reality yeah. when you're studying, yeah. McAllister hears something like a hum. The throbbing hum of a breathing world, Frank says to himself. And he sees like a pink ribbon in a tree nearby. So we cut over to this scene and we see several monks speaking that Hyperborean language. And we see that one in the blue robe that we saw at the beginning of the issue. It's a dope robe. <laughs> and they're all speaking that language. And we see a bunch of women, or I guess these are all the girls, their hands are bound. The monks chant... And a large mass of black hooded warriors respond. These fucking dorks. And they brandish all their swords. The head monk guy in the blue, he raises a sword over this girl. Her eyes have black flames burning within them. Mm. Great darkness, he says. This life will end so that yours may begin again. But see how he uh, 
boomerang system, self the throbbing of life. I think these guys they might not realize it, but they are a cult in service to the Black Goddess. Yeah. Right. He has... I don't think they even realize it. Right. I think they're 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 trying to give life to something else. Mm, right. I think they might know what the black flame is somehow or that's what they're worshiping, but mm. in reality, I think that's the black goddess. Mm. I think that's Hecate. Mm. Sure. See, I, that's pretty manipulative. Yeah. That force works its way in. Right, right. I still wonder if it's just humans have this attraction to weird unknowable stuff and the more powerful or magnetic this force is the more humans are going to be drawn to that no matter even if they don't know what they're dealing with like the if you build it they will come kind of a deal even Mm -hmm. if you don't know what you're dealing with you're you're drawn to it and you want to have something to do with it and so it's i don't know Chapter 3, so again, another great cover by Lawrence Campbell. We see the crew, they're really small um, within this giant mouth of this black They've skull. got jungle rot on their feet because they're not properly prepared for walking around in this environment. <laughs> it's a whole mess. The group continues on their trek. Farang thinks they still have a day or so till they get to the temple. But LaFleur notices a nearby temple, a very ominous looking temple. Super cool. Jewel says it looks like some chimer sites she's seen in the past. It looks a little bit like when Liz was having all those visions. Of Agartha uh-huh. and stuff like that? Yeah. yeah. And so um, I did some searching. There are a lot of chimer temples, and this one kind of looks like Phantom Rung, but it's not exactly. The team can't date the structure. Well, they were saying the architecture reminds me of a Tibetan thing from the Himalayas, and he was like, I'm reminded of Babylonian stuff. And so it's very... There's all these different elements and mythologies. Everyone sees something else. It seems abandoned, but McAllister notices fresh footprints. So the team decides to have a (laughs) look-see. Inside the temple, the statues are so eroded that they think it's part of the ancient kingdom of Funan, which I already described. McAllister recalls talking to Rangoon University professor Algernon Price, and so this is a fictional guy, and he explains exactly what I was talking about earlier. They don't know a lot about it, and what they do know about it is from a few sparse documents. To think there might have been kingdoms and empires to rival our own Vanished all but completely from the historical record, McAllister says. They say the sun never sets on the British Empire, Hmm. but might a day come that we fall to darkness too? Hmm, that is a timely comment. Oh my god. I wonder if Rome ever had any issues. (laughs) (laughs) And Jewel says, there's many back in the States who wouldn't mind forgetting all about the empire you Brits built, McAllister. But I've had my own share of experiences with lost civilizations and forgotten societies, that's for sure. Things that were buried and gone long time ago. And we get this skull with the two snakes coming out of the eyes here. There it is. There it is. We get a couple things, right? We also see that little Cthulhu figure that we've seen in a couple stories pop up. And the frog. And the frog. And we also see the medallion of the Ogdruhem that Mm. Rasputin wore around. Or no. Was it Rasputin or? No, it was a different guy. Bromhead. Yeah. No, wait. I thought that was a St. Dunstan one. There was a different one. No, I think Rasputin wore that no, one. No, there was a different guy. Okay, tell us in the listener feedback. But it's got the Ogdruhem on it, and you can buy it <laughs> as a replica from Skeleton Crew. Nice. And then we see one of those frogs, like Aubrey said. 
They walk into this dark cavern and they hear sounds of bones crunching under their feet. Maybe a predator has made this his den. Sandhu lights a match. Ah, well, he says. <laughs> they see all these skulls. Super good. So then they start thinking, well, maybe this is a burial site. Honestly, Sarah LaFleur tells Jewel as she reenacts a classic scene from Hamlet. Ah, you can't Alas, help yourself. Alas, poor what's-his-name. A fellow of infinite something or other, she says, <laughs> while holding up one of the skulls. I love that, how they joke yeah. around and, like, the, these are dead bodies and they're, like, make each other laugh. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you see a skull, you gotta pick it up and do yeah. a Shakespeare thing. <laughs> whether, whether it's real or fake. Right. Sandhu says... All these dead people seem like they just fell down. Suddenly, Farang hears something, and then he gets slashed. We see one of those black-hooded warriors from earlier, and he's speaking in that hyperborean language. We're not alone in here, Farang says, drawing his gun. Then the sword dorks jump out of every side of the cave. Yeah, they're surrounded by these assassins. A great page. It's really great, yeah. And I love how they all draw their guns. They're like, you know, in the center around the approaching swordsmen. Couple of pages of fighting some nerds. Black Hoods, McAllister says. The men who kidnapped the Ellsworth girl. Worry about their sartorial choices later. Shoot them. And so what he's talking about is their fashion choices. Because he says Black Hoods. (laughs) So I thought that that was funny. And so, yeah, there's some great action here as they're kind of slashing at them. I really love how Mitten does, like, the blood splatter. It's just a really interesting way of, I don't know, animating that or whatever. It's really good and looking gruesome. Yeah. They shoot at the attackers, but the bullets don't seem to slow them. And our team isn't doing that great. Sandhu gets smashed in the face by the hilt of a sword and is saved by Jewel right before he could get his head chopped. As she's gloating and telling them they're going to have to buy her drinks, she gets chopped in the back of the legs. And Farang saves her. McAllister attempts to hold them off. Too bloody dark in here, he says. Can't aim properly. You know what they say about cursing the darkness, McAllister, Jewel asks. But seeing as we don't have a candle. And so there's this old Chinese proverb, better to light one candle than to curse the darkness. Mm. Jewel crafts a torch for McAllister, and with it and his gun, they plan for him to hold the attackers off as the rest of it make a run for it. But Sandhu is hesitant to leave the sergeant. McAllister exacts his vengeance for the kidnapped girls. You lot like to snatch up little girls, eh, he says, as he blows his one guy's head off. Let's see how you fare against me. But then his gun gets knocked out of his hand, and then so he uses the torch to burn one of the guy's face off, and the attacker pulls off the black hooded as it's burning. And so we reveal his face, and like, he doesn't have eyes, right? Sewn shut or something? something, right? Yeah. There's some kind of like weaving going between the eye sockets or something. Yeah. I was going to say, it kind of looks like it was burnt out, but yeah, you're right. The weaving looks, it looks more like it was weaved shut. Yeah. Hard no. Your eyes, McAllister says. And then suddenly he gets stabbed through with Ah, a sword. Yeah, that really sucks. And so when they pull it, he screams out. You know, for a moment there, I thought he was going to make it, and then he got stabbed. Yeah. He got real arrogant at the end where he was like, oh, you like to get little girls, huh? Like, I feel like when when a character does that, like, they're going to get killed. Yeah. It, it seems like <laughs> any time a character starts gloating. Yeah. It's just like, don't gloat, just kill and go. 
or just scream justice and jump out from behind a fucking closet door and hit them with a fucking folding chair. But see, that's not gloating. die. No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Hit them with a fucking shoe rack until they start bleeding from their eye sockets. McAllister screams out and falls to the floor. Outside. Did you hear that? Sanhu asks. The sergeant. We can't just leave him. But Ferang stops him. That is exactly what we will do. I have heard the sound of men dying more times than I care to recall, he says, and that man is dead. And unless you wish to join him, I suggest that we press onward. But Sandhu looks back. Of course, I mean, it's his friend. Yeah. You know what I mean? And again, like Matt mentioned earlier, he's outside of the panel there. So that kind of makes me feel like he's he feels separated from the rest of the group. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They're ready to leave McAllister, but he has that doubt. Over within the temple, this is a different one because this is the one uh, that they're still looking for. We see those monk guys from earlier, and they address the hooded guys. It says translated from Funanese. After many long turnings of the season, the hour is nearly upon us, the one in the blue robe says. Some of your brethren are still out in the jungle testing those who have already been found worthy. But we found the one that we sought. When night falls, the ritual will begin. And the great darkness will rise. And so they see they have the this one little girl there with black hair. And she has black eyes too. I assume that's that black flame also burning. Chapter 4. This cover is slick. Yeah, this is incredible work by Lawrence Campbell here. We see this little girl and she's within this like... It's a skull image but it's made up of like... Like branches and... branches and the ground and everything there's so much little yeah. intricate detail in there um, really amazing we open in bangkok 1919 and we see farang he's in an opium den nice and so there's all these other people passed out hell yeah and the way that they do like the haze in the room it's good that's a yeah. really interesting so good. yeah give me some of that and so while he's having his moment he has this vision he's tripping out real hard he sees the black goddess fuck yeah there it is yeah my child make ready the way and so i like how she's talking to him in german that's his language yeah but she also looks like the depiction of kali we saw earlier no it wasn't kali it was urshigal Right, but I'm saying that. Oh yeah, that's mixed up in there too. Yeah. So they kind of have it, and the cosmic look of this is so fucking badass. It's amazing. Yeah. It's so good. Incredible work here. Hell yeah. Okay, so as we've been going through it, I'm like, I didn't know why I didn't catch a lot of this stuff earlier, but it was like at this moment, I was like, okay, I know exactly how this is going to end. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's setting us up here. Still wanting to curiously you know, journey how to get there, but I mean, I was just like, this page but then, is so awesome. but then going back and like reading through it today, I'm all like, oh, why did I miss that? How did I miss all this? <laughs> God damn it! I'll repay attention. <laughs> <laughs> and so Farang floats there in space. What are you? He asks. You know me of old, the black goddess says, the indwelling flame that burns in the heart of all living things. And so she starts speaking that hyperborean language, and Farang like opens up his shirt, and it's all like cosmic within there. That is so cool. I love that. And then his eyes start burning with this blue flame, and now he's saying those things too. Yeah, I think he's opening his shirt and looking down at the black flame's body. Oh, okay. Right. Right. And then... After he sees that, dies. Yeah. Back with the team, after their battle and the loss of McAllister, Lafleur says Jules' leg needs tending to. 
Frank doesn't think that they've been followed, so he's like, okay, we can stop here. And Jewel tries to play off the injury, saying she's had far worse. One time I ran afoul of a whole troop of headhunters in Borneo, she says. Seems I trespassed on sacred ground or some such. They wanted my head as a trophy, but I was more of a mind to keep it. Had to fight my way out with an old cavalry saber. I made it, but took a spear to the arm for my troubles. This was the trophy I took away with me. And so she shows that she's got a big scar there. Mm. All right. And there's another story to add to that. Uh, right. <laughs> collection. <laughs> That's a nasty scar. It's true, LaFleur says. But stop squirming or you'll have an even nastier one on this leg. Sandhu and Farang inspect the sword Farang was able to get from one of the attackers. He says it's ancient, but such sophisticated craftsmanship. Who were those hooded men, and how did they happen to find us, Farang asks. They ask Sanhu how he's doing after getting his face bashed in. He says he needs to take headache powder, but nice. LaFleur gives him this concoction that smells horrid, but is meant to heal. Sanhu gags after drinking it. Happy to help, LaFleur responds. <laughs> <laughs> so what is that stuff that she gives him? What do you think that is? I wonder if that was meant to be like... um. Didn't people take crazy stuff for pain like crazy back in the day? Stuff. Like just basically drugs, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Just basically yeah. like Shit, opium. They, they 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 sold water with radiation as like a fucking health tonic. So. Right, yeah. Who the fuck knows what it is? I mean it could be apple cider vinegar. Right. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's true, yeah. That would smell pretty bad. It's probably weed juice. <laughs> yeah, it's C B D oil. Yeah. <laughs> Ferang says McAllister was lucky to die so quickly, luckier than most who serve their countries. But Sandhu's offended. He says, how dare you? What do you know about serving one's country? Frank says he was in the Imperial German Navy and jumped ship when he had a chance. You're a deserter, Sandhu asks? No, I'm a survivor, Frank responds. And so he mentions being on the SMS Emden. It stands for His Majesty's Ship Emden was the second and final member of the Dresden class of light cruisers built for the Imperial German Navy and named for the town of Emden. In 1913, Carl von Müller took command of the ship after some successful missions. Müller took Emden to raid the Cocos Islands, where he landed a contingent of sailors to destroy British facilities. There, Emden was attacked by the Australian cruiser, the HMAS Sydney, the more powerful Australian ship quickly inflicted serious damage and forced Mueller to run his ship aground to avoid sinking. Out of the crew of 376, 133 were killed in the battle. Most of the survivors were taken as prisoner. The landing party commanded an old schooner and eventually returned to Germany. And so that's so interesting because that's exactly what he talks about here. So they take the actual history of what happened mm. with this ship and they just put Farang in there. Yeah. But so everything that he describes here is part of the historical record, including that the landing party eventually returned to Germany. And so when they're all going to Germany, Farang's like, instead of going with the troops, he went up to Siam, spent a few years in an opium den haze until he had enough of that as well. Sandhu wonders if they should get reinforcement, but LaFleur asks, who would they even get? Joel sharpens a stick into a spear and says they should press on. McAllister gave his life, and they owe it to him and the girls to see it through. He just said spend his time in an opium den until he had enough of that, too. Do you think it's possible that all his life he's been getting these visions from the Black Goddess? Oh, right. Like, yeah, because we show... 
we not saw even him. opium suppresses it oh yeah yeah so maybe he's just always running from that yeah that makes yeah. a lot of That's, sense and he considers himself a survivor and like no matter what he can't get away from so like he's in art school or whatever at the museum and as a kid he sees like what he thinks is urshagal but then over time it's kind of turning into the black goddess more and more well, yeah like, and he's just being haunted yeah well it's like even when we saw the uh the first time he saw, like, looking at the artwork, he saw, like, those three panels where it shows him getting older. So I just assume that means he's been seeing her. Like, oh, yeah. His whole yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And she said he's been, he's wrestled with his own demons. And it's like, man, you don't know the half of it. Right, <laughs> right. Like, yeah. he's literally wrestling with demons. And maybe now he's leading them because, and I don't know that they actually come out and say this, but maybe now he's leading them because he's like, look, I have to find an answer to this right right that's his part of it and because how does he know where all this stuff is in the right first yeah maybe he's got some sort of homing beacon or it's he feels like or he researched or it he researched it previously as a means of trying to figure out what it is that he's plagued by yeah that's a great point going back to the opium dim thing where he says like he hung around that until he got tired of that and then we just saw him have a vision in the opioid den right maybe the opioids were suppressing it long enough but then black goddess broke through and then he's like all right yeah he's gotta do something else yeah i love that theory they make a plan and sin who agrees they must find the girls as they talk they hear this noise someone groaning they go and they follow the sound i love that panel down at the bottom where it says it came from this direction just like um it looks like they're really going into some ominous territory and they go into like this cave area i just like the way it's framed on the other side too they go and follow the sound and they see a woman lying on the ground it seems like she's waking up she sees the group and screams in hindi no i won't go please don't make me lafleur says that she looks like she's drugged Sandhu is able to communicate with her and tells her he's a police officer and there to help. The girl explains her story about the Black Hoods. They stole her in a bazaar. There were other girls. They made them drink something that made us sleepy in our heads, she says, but not our bodies. They took us away to be tested. Hard to remember exactly. They brought me here and something burned, she says. And so we got to describe this panel. What is going on down here where it says <laughs> hard to remember it, exactly. It, it's a failed attempt, I think. They're like, yeah. oh, we're so close to getting the black flame, but it's not quite working. Right, right. Jewel recalls the scorched earth and the dead animals they saw earlier. The girl says she doesn't know where the black hoods are now. Sandhu says those men won't bother you again. I promise. Later, we see the group around a campfire. They wonder about these tests that the girl mentioned, and what happens if they fail, Sandhu wonders, but Jewel is just as worried about those that pass. Farang says the cult is searching for someone in particular, but they don't know who. He also thinks she's describing the temple that they're looking for. Sandhu says they don't know how many more hooded attackers there are, and Jewel says with her injury, she won't be able to help. She'll stay back and protect the girl. Please do, Sandhu says. I promised her. And so they get all their weapons, and they decide to leave the packs with Jewel as well. Go on now. We'll be fine, she says. Do we have a plan, LaFleur asks. Find the temple, find the cult, find the girls. Simple, Farang says. Sounds easy when you say it like that, Sandhu responds. Sandhu tells the girl that Jewel will take care of her. 
but who will take care of you, she asks. And he just looks back at her. Mm. So we cut over to that monk from earlier, and he's uh, translated from Funanese again. He explains their origin. For 10,000 generations, the darkness has watched over us, he says. Alone among all the races of man, she shared her mysteries with our people. In the dark and hidden places beyond the mountains, she came to us. When other tribes forced us south, we kept our covenant. And the great darkness blessed us with her presence and her protection. Our order ruled this part of the world until the Han forced us to retreat once more to our hidden places in the jungle. But the great darkness will soon bless us with an incarnate avatar, and we will ascend into great darkness once again. All that is required is sacrifice. And so we see, you know, some flashbacks. We see, like, that black-blue flame, you know, emerging in the sky. We also see the monk. He's standing in front of this huge statue of the black goddess. And then we also see that little girl that we saw earlier with the black hair and the black eyes. So they do know that they're worshipping the black Oh, goddess. right, they do. And so yeah. now I'm wondering, it just feels to me that they don't have their finger on what it is they're exactly right. trying to do. Like an avatar. Eh, sort of. Right, right. Maybe they think that it's an avatar for the black goddess it's herself and not just yeah and maybe the, they think the black flame is the, oh, is the black okay. goddess yeah you're right because the black flame is the spark inside of all life right is what they're saying right yeah. yeah so they're just trying to bring that out meaning the origins of it and then they and keep... i think sorry, the avatar is kind of like you know that's their simple human brain saying oh well we'll just put the spirit into one of us you know right like humans do whereas completely unnecessary like that power exists whether you have an avatar for it or not yeah yeah so they probably think that you know being her being the black goddess i mean that's probably why they keep kidnapping girls because oh yeah they think that they're going to put like the uh, female black goddess into an avatar so they figure it needs to yeah be a that avatar. makes sense that totally yeah. makes sense thank you for that so this chapter five cover is just terrifying to me i don't like looking at it i'm just like Ugh. It's, it's, it's just the best and the worst cover ever yes so what you're saying is you want it on your wall I know, right? <laughs> I mean, hey, if Lawrence Cam- if I got this cover from Lawrence Campbell, I would not be upset about it, but I would also like it's just terrifying. It's a testament to his abilities. Yeah. The group arrives at the Temple of the Black Flame. Sandhu tries to give LaFleur some tips, and she says, This isn't my first dance. Infiltrated many hidden temples, have you? he asks. Temples, lairs, crypts. Sarah and I get around, she says. <laughs> And there's, there's another story right there. There you go. <laughs> so they look down into the temple, into this wall, and then they see the whole scene. They see the monk in the blue robe. They've got the girl with the black hair on this like pedestal, you know, ready to be sacrificed. And then all those black hooded warriors around them. And again, just incredible work by Mitten. It is so intricate. But it all those little, like, just the marks, I guess, the squiggles, they just inform all this detail that you're not really seeing. Just amazing. They mean to sacrifice the girl, Sanhu says. Farang and Sanhu, they decide to go down into the chamber and stop them. Meanwhile, Lafleur will search for the girls. So they split up. Back with Jewel and the girl. Jewel tries to comfort the girl. But she says, no one is safe. The bad men told me the darkness is coming for us all. If not today, then soon. And, you know, cosmologically speaking, they did come soon. 
I mean, oh yeah. I mean, if you think about it, because like uh, the the whole thing with the black flame and the hell on earth, that all it takes yeah, place. Yeah, like, you're right. What about a hundred years later? Yeah, <laughs> that's a blink in the eye. <laughs> Back with Lafleur in the temple, she hears girls crying, and so she finds them all chained up in there. She tells them that her and her friends are there to help. And she has these lockpicks on her. I think that's very informing, too, that she just carries lockpicks. And she starts removing the shackles. But what about the bad men, one of the girls asks. Let my friends worry about them, she says. You have brought many friends, the girl asks. Just two. But they'll have to do, LaFleur responds. Now come on, let's get you out of here. And I like how in the uh, the word bubbles, they're all like the smaller text. So we know that they're kind of speaking in lower they're terms whispering, yeah, to each yeah. other. Yeah, I love this moment with Sanhu and Farang. This is one of the best character moments in here. I love this because Farang's like, are you afraid? And Sanhu says, I'm a trained officer of the Imperial Police Service, sir. Of course, I am not afraid. Well, I'm a yes. German deserter, and I'm drunk, and I'm terrified. Farang responds, <laughs> <laughs> but I won't let that stop me. That was just a great exchange. I really loved that. And so they jump into the middle of the temple to stick up all those armed black hooded soldiers. And then we find that they've all killed themselves. Did you say stick up? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they had the the guns. Yeah, I guess uh, stick them up or whatever. I guess we've been reading too much Lobster Johnson. (laughs) They have to kill themselves. That's part of the sacrifice. And so that's kind of like the twist, right? Because they keep, we keep thinking they're going to sacrifice the girl, but instead all these soldiers sacrifice themselves for something having to do with the girl. They all killed themselves, Sanhu says. Not all of them, Farang says. And so we see the monks there. We see the girl on the pedestal. And they hold up their guns. Put down the knives and back away. Bastards. <laughs> it's so cool. Yeah, I love the way that middle panel, you know, the color and everything, you know, just those little lines there uh, make it very dynamic. But the monks just keep chanting. Stay away from the girl, they say again. Farang asks for Sanhu's gun and says he can surely take on nine old monks with two pistols. He tells Sanhu to grab the girl. And so Sanhu does so. Drop the damn knives, he tells them. And so the monks, they chant and lower them. We hear you, little man, the main one says, but we answer to a higher authority. You cannot begin to comprehend the forces at work here. I don't need to understand anything, Farang says. And so he just starts blowing away all the monks. And again, we get this action from Mitten that is just really expressive. I think it's really interesting how he um, conveys that. But it's just uh, it's just really well done. I love this. And so Farang shooting all of them. He says, rot in hell. And so we see um, the aftermath. He's killed all of them. And he goes up to the one in the blue. So much for your higher authority. You regret now answering to mine now? And I couldn't under, I couldn't translate this. I tried to translate it, but it said like is not so, or it it, it said something like that. You regret not answering to me now. Is that right, or yeah, something like that? Like, yeah. It just seems like it's, he's just like talking smack. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like he said, you think? Yeah. Oh yeah, something like that. And so the monk in blue, he's dying, but he's still alive. And with his dying breath, he says, "You are not ready. Ready for what?" Farang responds, I stopped you from killing that little girl. That's enough for me. We never intended to kill her, the monk says. She was to be the vessel. Vessel, Farang asks. We would pass on the gifts that our followers gave us, the black flame of dissolution that burns within every living thing. 
Now, now you're that, stuck with it, pal. Yeah, now that gift is yours, he says as he dies. And then shit goes down. Yeah, so Farang, he, there's this one panel where he's just got like a question mark over his head. <laughs> and then all of a sudden there's like this fizzing sound oh, and all this like black tendrils start going into him from the monks. And he just like screams out in agony. And the work here by Christopher Mitten and Dave Stewart is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. There's this giant blast and Sanhu and the little girl are thrown. Then he drops her and she wakes up and he turns around and he looks at Farang and this panel He's is just like crumpling cra- yeah. down. And then I like all the scribbly, scratchy yeah. stuff in there. Yeah, We've talked about the different ways that different artists interpret the black flame. We've seen Guy Davis do it. Yeah. Then James Heron had a totally different take on it. And then here we see Christopher Mitten has that kind of scratchy. That's kind of what you're de- you're describing. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Super cool. Well, it's like what I what I texted you last night when I was reading this. He's like he's doing his best Havoc impression. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So you right. sent, you sent me a picture of right. Havoc from um, X Men Two Seventy. Oh, or, thank you. Un- Uncanny X Men Two Seventy. Yeah, and there is a Havoc is kind of in a similar pose, but yeah, it does kind of lend us of that. He almost has like the Havoc logo in the center of his shirt. So Sanhu's like, hold on, man, I'll try. He comes over to try to save him, but then he starts getting all burned by the black flame. And so he just falls backwards. Make it stop, Farang says. Make it. And so he's like all being consumed. He looks like he's in such agony. And we also see that his dog tags drop onto the ground. So suddenly he hears a voice. It will all be fine. Can you hear me? And it's the little girl. The pain will continue, but you will bear it more easily in time. Just listen to the sound of my voice. And this first panel, like as he's transforming, he's like mid-transformation here from Farang to the skull face. And then it's just, it's just like, I don't know, I just thought that was incredible. Yeah. Um, how they're kind of showing it's so that. It's creepy. Yes, it's incredibly creepy and kind of sad, you know what I mean? It's yeah. just very, um, th- there's some emotion there still before it turns into the skull eyes. She says, my name is Kamala. I am here to help you. Incredible, right? So we know Kamala from The Burning Hand, and we knew that she had some sort of association with the Black Flame, but we didn't really know what. I mean, we just saw them together, and then at the end, she's able to revive him by singing this song. And so here she says, just listen to the sound of my voice. So I I really love how they um, called back to that. Didn't we already hear somebody talking about like the song or something like that? Oh, right. yeah, in the yeah. very beginning, he yeah. says, uh, "The perfect song of the void is only beautiful if you can hear it. Mighty music, but not mine." That's easing his pain, right? Tapping into it, right? And she's the vessel, yeah. So yeah. she knows what to do to get him to, you know, stay the course. She's the high priestess of the the thing but so that makes me want to know that music even more that she's singing because remember they actually show it on the scales yeah they did um i gotta get a way to figure out what that's because that's it that's the song of the abyss or whatever that she's singing right there man that's incredible freaking haunting that's like a trend that's like the closest that we would get to a translation of like the hyperborean language (laughs) is getting to hear this black flame song or whatever and it's just tragic it's like you know me Kill the black flame. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't his fault. Right. The guy hated the black flame in that Locked for John Cena story. Right, right. But it, he is a tragic figure. It, he wasn't, he was a good guy. Yeah. It, and it, I think he was a deserter because he was on the run from 
personal mm-hmm. demons right. and literal demons. Yeah. I mean, he's a lot different than uh, Landis Pope. Pope, you know, he willingly right. walked into that. And this guy just had it. It looks, but like I he wonder, was, it looks like he was faded from birth almost. Right. Would there have been a Landis Pope oh, if, right. or Black Flame if yeah. not for this one? Yeah. And, and I think it's so interesting, like, when he tells Sandhu, he's like, give me your guns and I'll do this, and you get the mm-hmm. girl. Like, that's a very crucial decision, because if he hadn't done that, then maybe it would have been Sandhu, but Sandhu wasn't destined for it like he was. So that's just, I think that's really interesting that he makes that choice to do that, to save the girl, and then this is what happens. You know what I mean? The great darkness came to me in a dream, the girl says. She told me that I was not destined to be the Avatar, as the old man believed. It would fall to me to help the Avatar in his journey. I will be both servant and spouse to the Avatar of the great darkness, Kamala says, teacher and high priestess, handmaiden and guide, and together we will face your destiny. And we focus in on that statue of the Black Goddess. Yeah, really amazing. And uh, it also made me think of the song that's keeping Vivara at bay. That's a whole other song, weird thing that's going on there. So this end part, we cut back to Sandhu. He's checking out of the hotel, and we see that half of his face is burned, right, from um, getting burned by the black fire. We also see Jewel and Lafleur, so everybody made it out okay. Sandhu says, the girl's parents are being tracked down. He will take the Aylesworth girl back and inform the parents of the daughters who didn't make it. So some of the girls were killed in this process. Yeah. Jules says her contact in Berlin confirmed a soldier with the identity they found on the tag and that he was on the SMS Emden. So the story that Farang told was the truth. He died to protect those girls, Lafleur says. At least now we can mourn him properly. I'm not so certain that he did die, Sandhu responds, but perhaps he wishes that he had. And so we see the dog tags, and if we didn't guess it by now, his real name is Ryman Diestel. And so we cut to the Caribbean in 1932. And so this is a very familiar scene, right? This is how we were introduced to him in Lobster Johnson, The Burning Hand, where... Uh, she ordered something. There was some guy, like, his wife was scolding him yeah, for looking good. at her or whatever. <laughs> it was really great. He's got a hat on. And he's like, sir, can I get you anything? Nine. You seem troubled, my dear, Kamala says. We will be ashore in New York soon enough. And then you can carry on with your great and terrible destiny. Any clothing he puts on becomes all gray and ashen and yeah. weird, like, crackly black stuff all over. And it, like, so whatever kind of... I don't know. That's super. That's super funny to yeah. me. Like if he put on a pair of Nikes, it would look like that. You become the black. Uh, yeah. The, the black flame. Nikes. Oh man, I want some black flame shoes or something. Let's get some whole Hellboy line of footwear. Yeah, that would be awesome. I'm down. <laughs> so here he. All right. So this is Daiso, right? And he was a good guy as mm-hmm. Farang. I don't have a problem with that guy at all. He's not even like an anti-hero, really. Right. He's just, Pretty heroic, and he's got it together. And then we know what happens in Lobster Johnson to this guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. But I think where his story really comes full circle is he's back in a German prison where a deserter would be. Oh, that is so interesting in Sledgehammer, yeah. So he's had plenty of time for this black flame magic to consume him. Yeah. And he, he has... By the time they get to the United States, he is invested 
He's changed. He is yeah. the Black Flame. He's like, this is my yeah. terrible destiny. I'm going to do this. And then when he's in service to Hitler, and so now he's just basically back there. But mm-hmm. he's got like this ultimate opponent, right, right, in Sledgehammer. But then if you think that in the same way he saw those eyes in the museum, those giant eyes, and then he saw the black goddess in that cosmic void or whatever. He is still seeing that in Lightning. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I like to think that it's talking to him. And so that, you know, it's like, well, all right, why did he accept his fate? Well, he's constantly being badgered by the black goddess. Right. Wow. She's like, I mean, that's like steady brainwashing over the course of his life. Then he mutates into the black flame. She's still going after him. Well, and he's and got then, Kamala, too. He's got her. And she's that, guiding him, you know, quote And unquote. then when she died, he was like, well, now what? Right. Because right? there goes my vessel or whatever. I'm just an avatar. So I think it makes perfect sense for him to just fall in line with what Hitler wants him to do and go steal that flame. Right. And then that's why he's so, he just feels so overly dominant to the sledgehammer. Right. right? Like right. he keeps standing on him. Keeps yelling at him about how I'm better than you, right? And right. I, I know they told these stories out of, out of order. That's cool. I wouldn't want them to start out with Rise of the Black Flame, then Lobster Johnson, then Lightning War. Right. I, I like how they did it, but I have to think they had all of this in mind. Yeah, yeah. Like the Black Flame. Uh, yeah. It's just the thing that a CEO wants to be, because <laughs> it was a Golden Age era villain. No. It came from the Black Goddess. Right. I could easily see them devising uh, at, yeah. at least that part of the origin story yeah. decades I love earlier that. or, whatever, or yeah. a decade earlier. Yeah, thank you for bringing it all back around. That was great, Matt. Yeah, so he ends up being worthy of our hate. There's um, this sketchbook note by Scott Alley. He says, Selling early 20th century Siam was crucial to making this book work. So while I'd done a number of modern-day projects with Chris Mitten, we asked him to do some samples to show he could evoke the location. These pieces got him the job. And so we see um, some of those amazing layouts of the different statues. This one that says Black Flame Test Number 1 is just incredible. This one with just like the hut and like all the... It's just... It's I page mean, 128. Yeah, the these marks or whatever are amazing. Yeah, it's beautiful. And we also get another note by Scott Alley. He says, Lawrence Campbell's cover sketches for Rise of the Black Flame number one included ideas for title treatment, stacking the text like we were doing in BPRD at the time. We had a logo designed by our in-house designer, Cindy Casares Sprague, by the time Lawrence did the issue two sketches. And so I thought that was really cool. That a shout out to their in-house logo designer. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah, big yeah. time. Um, and we get some examples of Lawrence Campbell's different processes. After Dave Stewart colored the issue number four cover, Lawrence decided the skull design should be more prominent, so he redrew it, as you see in the image on the chapter four break. And then he also says, following page, a charity piece Lauren did for International Comics Expo in Britain 2016. And it is this incredible buff flame yeah. image that is terrifying. I will have to post that online so you guys could check it out. Seeing how they mentioned the logo designer, uh, what did y'all think of the, the logo itself, the Rise of the Black Flame? I liked it, yeah. I thought it was really good. And it definitely went well with like the time period and the setting and everything. The covers were just amazing for this series. Yeah. 
Yeah, and Mitten is the nicest guy. Remember, I met him in Portland. Yeah, so I'd love to friendly. meet him. Yeah, that'd be awesome. All right. So, yeah, we're, like I said, we're working on the reading order with Mark Tweedo. We're going to have some short episodes. We're going to have some long episodes. Obviously, this was a long one. And so we'll get some varying links, but we're going to have book club episodes for you guys every week. We're going to be doubling up on some episodes coming up. We might be doing some double episodes. So, you know how that is. We fall behind on the listener feedback and then get caught back up, but it'll be all good. So, thank you guys so much for your continued listenership. And now Aubrey's going to say all the things. All right, everybody, share us your thoughts on Rise of the Black Flame and how you would kill it. Um, <laughs> you can send us a Hey You Damn Guys at Hellboy Book Club at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook at Hellboy Book Club Podcast and on Instagram and Twitter at Hellboy Book Club. And on Facebook, you can also find the reading list, the Discord link, and Adam Hicks Chronology. Yeah, so check that out. Uh, we're going to give a special thanks to Paul from Gotcherhan for the wonderful music. It's beautiful and we always love it. Uh, thank you, Mark Tweedell, for all the hard work you're doing with the reading list. And thank you, John, for all the editing and just fucking being John. <laughs> <laughs> you can find the podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Next week, we are reading, and this one's for you, Jan, Hellboy in Hell. Hey! Three Gold Whips and the Death Card. How about it? Awesome. Yes. Man, so you know what to do. Fucking time travel to next week so we can talk about <laughs> Hellboy in Hell. Yeah. I'll see you next week. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. I'm John Salinas. I'm Danielle. And I'm Matt Strackbine. And I'm Aubrey Lovelace saying, Helioptic Bozos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ha, ha, ha.